0: 9.
1: Hello and welcome to podcast like it's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from our pigeon cage here in 2019. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Ivor. I'm Philusco, and with us today are two writers I work with, Jordan Heimer and Manny Figueroa. Well, nice to have you guys. It's great
3: to nice be, to be here.
1: Thank you for coming out, guys. I love Koreatown.
2: In in fact, my my first job in L.A. was in this building at a uh, Korean hagwon, which is the traditional Korean after school called Brain Text.
4: Brain Text sounds
2: terrifying. Uh, There was one teacher. It was me.
1: And uh, (laughs) the
2: owner, Douglas, would tell various teachers that he had a professor of fill in the blank, whatever they asked for on the phone. So so I was variously a chemistry professor, a physics professor. I did it all. We don't talk
1: about that we're in Koreatown ever. We don't we are, ever we don't ever divulge Town. our location.
3: So just do a training day, Koreatown story. Don't look at me. <laughs> uh, I did locations for that movie out here, and I was the only one who would go to Koreatown at three in the morning and open the sets. Oh, and wow. I had to go find that alley where like uh, Denzel beats the shit out of that dude and puts a gun up to him and is like, "Hey, like, what is it?" I forget. It, I forget the iconic line from that one, but yeah, Koreatown <laughs> is like training day for you me. You did locations <laughs> yeah. for a training day. Yeah, that's where I was in 2001, not 2000.
4: Does kind of that. Take us really, to our next cool. question. Yeah. yeah. So here's where were you guys in 99?
3: Well, in 99, I had like dropped out of high school the year before, and I was just kind of like fucking around trying to figure out what to do. And I had like trying to make a short film. And I started, I got into this like program that was like for at risk people to get into the entertainment business called Streetlights. And They kind of put a bunch of, like, people who were, like, in gangs and, like, former drug addicts and people, like, people who were at risk Sure, uh, at the Universal backlot, and they just taught them all how to make movies in 99, and that was, I mean, how to PA, not how to make movies. Like, how to, like, take orders for coffee and get yelled at without, like, punching, you know, their face because that's what you're used to if somebody disrespects you. Like, so that whole thing led to me working on just, like, just hood movie after hood movie. And it's like, this guy will go to these places at any time of night. And that was like my first, you
1: know, (laughs) beginning. That's so similar to my first beginning. (laughs) No,
2: No. Jordan, where were
1: you? That might be a little more similar.
2: Like Manny. (laughs) I was a junior in high school in, uh, the hard streets of Westport, Connecticut. Um, (laughs) That kind of sums it up. If you've ever been a junior in high school in the suburban Connecticut, you know, there's there's no second sentence there. It's just like I was, I was at my dad's house.
4: <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So what films in 99 really jumped out at you guys? I mean, what are the films? I mean, I'm assuming that at this point you guys are seeing a lot of movies in the theater in 99. Do you think that's... Oh, yeah. Like a lot of movies. like. Yeah.
3: That's when I started going to the New Beverly and the Egyptian sure. Theater because I lived out here and that was like sort of my film school place was like oh, going awesome. to these theaters. And I would just go like, you know, just a ton of movies in 99 for sure. I don't, have, I don't remember what movies came out in 99, but if are you I pulling mean, up a list, Jordan? <laughs> I'm trying. Right. You got your well, we <laughs> you cooperate.
1: I gave you guys the list, but we were already like 40 films yeah. in yeah. at that point. So it was yeah. like Ghost Dog was kind of.
3: This one was a big one though for me for sure.
1: I remember arguing about the profundity
2: of The
3: Matrix a lot. Sure. I hated The Matrix so yeah. much. The when fit, it came and out. You got yeah. Fight
1: Club. You
3: got... Uh... Oh,
2: more movies to argue about. I remember being at the Sherwood Diner uh-huh. and trying to explain to Gabe Phillips, like, these movies aren't that profound. They're
3: fine. You know what's what, sure. is not this not from that na- it was Sixth Sense for 99. I remember yeah, being like, Sixth man, like, that movie's so much bullshit. Like, uh-huh. when I rewatched I re- yeah, it, well, I was like... <laughs> I mean, listen, it, it kind of, of is. Yeah, I love M. Night Shyamalan, but
4: like... But it's good popcorn bullshit.
3: You know what it is? It's like... I had never realized how terrible Bruce Willis was at acting until I saw that movie, and I was like, oh, wow. "He's not
2: good," but Whoa. he's like next level. Like, yeah, I was just watching him as something. It's, he's not a good actor. Yeah, did, yeah. By the way, you know who else is terrible? Kevin Costner. In, like, yeah, bro, Kevin Kevin Costner in general, Kevin general. Yeah. Like I was watching a run of Kevin Costner baseball <laughs> movies last weekend because we I looked, had we talked field of dreams. We watched. did field of dreams at the last one, and, and it f- turns out. He's a, he's a good uh, you know he's charismatic he's a strong oh. presence but is he an actor? No. But wouldn't
4: you say that both these guys that you're naming and there's a there's a list of these guys, but like a movie star persona that they've nailed and then they just kind of do that over and over yeah, again. Yeah, I think Kevin Costner is maybe a little more guilty of it than uh, than Bruce. I think I Bruce agree takes a that. couple swings every now and then. Well, we that, had, that, uh, that
3: ties into a Kevin Costner story that happened at Streetlights when I was at Universal Studios where I was smoking cigarettes with my friends a couple for well. Semi-former, like, blood crip dudes who were in the thing. And we're right outside of the Johnny Carson building smoking cigarettes. And Kevin Costner walks out and sees, like, black and Mexican dudes smoking cigarettes. he comes up to it and he's like, you know, I was born in Compton.
0: And I was like
3: And we were just like Whoa <laughs> It's 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 the star of Dragonfly Like I don't know what to say like, That's incredible <laughs> And he said Try to like you know Relate to us a little more yeah. But we're like None of us were really offended It was just more like First of all Like like Kevin Costner in, Like walks out And he was like well, that's cool. Like we seemed all <laughs> fine with it. Like nobody felt
4: it was like. Really... But what a way to start a conversation! Like what a way to like walk into a group of people and be like, drop a mic like that. And, you like, didn't have a lot of time. Yeah,
1: I would have loved to just walk away
4: after. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's. I will say that ninety nine really covers the gamut of your straight up Hollywood popcorn movies, and then. Movies like Ghost Dog, movies like uh, Election or Audition, or, you know, you've got, it's, it's, it really covers yeah. the. Like Ron Lola
1: Ron and Julian Donkey
2: Boy. Yeah. We have stuff that's kind of real far out there.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: But then you got American the, Beauty or Taunton, Tom Mr. Ripper. or American Pie. Or, yeah, American
2: Pie. Yeah. The yeah. movie that I guess stays with me as a theater going experience from that time is Magnolia. Sure. Because especially in like, I'm not going to call them pre internet days, but they were pre-internet yeah. pre internet yeah, saturation days. Yeah. yeah. Like, I didn't have any sense of like, oh, yeah, this yeah. is a burgeoning time in American independent cinema. Yeah. It's just like, I'm going to go see this movie. It's quite long. I wonder what it's about. Yeah. And that was a movie where like you walked out and you like, oh, well, that's different. Yeah. That, that's a different way to put together a yeah. movie. I love know, it feels movie. like
4: being John Malkovich is another one that yeah. we point to. Yeah. Sure.
2: But the that Three was like the year, was that
4: year
3: too. That was like the first year where I was like taking girls to movies that they hated 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Like they
4: did, they did not want to see Ghost Dog the Way of the Samurai. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I I think I I think that's probably pretty true for me too. I think I forced a lot of people to see movies that I I think that to your point, I didn't necessarily obviously know what was happening, like that this was a real like amazing year for cinema, but I did recognize that there were it felt like there were a lot of good movies out there. Do you know what I mean? And I was just seeing a lot of movies, um, a good chunk of these in the theater, and definitely, definitely going on probably not great dates.
1: You keep taking mm-hmm. the straight story, and Existence*. Like that's, that's just *Existence*.
4: Happen. Was not a date, but yeah, definitely took people to that that didn't want to see. Oh, it. that is
3: a frustrating movie.
4: <laughs> *Existence*. I tried to watch
3: yeah. that because I was watching all the Cronenberg movies, and I was just like.
4: Nah. <laughs> yeah, you movie, and Kenny are right?
0: on the same page. That's, right? how, I, that's yeah. how I
1: felt. I, uh, I love it, but I I know. gave it a fifty, <laughs> and I mean that it was the it was the the, the most fifty ish move for me because I think I saw what he was going for, and I don't think that yeah. he got there. But I mean,
4: I I think that. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I think Cronenberg's a relatively interesting bridge into Jarmusch to a certain extent. Like, yeah. O tour filmmakers that are their own voice, and no one is going to shake them of that. Um, they get, it seems, independently funded, sometimes pseudo studio with Cronenberg in Canadian studio money. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's still, like, a little weird. Jarmusch's stuff is definitely bootstraps. I, I can't imagine the budget on Ghost Dog. I mean, I, I have it here. It was a $2 million budget, made $10 million, give or take. That feels about right. That feels about pretty consistent to what he does.
3: But we I saw think, like a reused picture car in there. That like uh, <laughs> that's true. <will> <laughs> they or, use like,
2: they use the same Grand Wagoneer yeah. for like city driving shots with kids hanging oh, on, skateboarding like Marty Is McFly. Perfect.
1: Is that the one next to the car? And, and then, then later when the they swap the license
2: yeah. oh, wait, it's, right. like, it's like a hero <laughs> car. Exactly.
3: <That's,
1: laughs> that that sounds <laughs> crazy to me. Well, that's,
3: think, that's how Jim Carrey showed to work that day. He's from the car. He's from the industrial
1: state, right? Yeah. So I think I think. I think the first line of the Wikipedia kind of sums up where this all came together. Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai is a 1999 American, German, French, Japanese crime action film. So I think he's pulled yeah. money from everywhere Every of, uh, he can yeah, get totally. it, for sure. to put $2 million together to make yeah. this totally fucking bad shit movie. Yeah. That, that, that no Forth one
4: Whitaker put, took scale for, for There's sure. nowhere
1: anyone understood this on the page. So you have to wonder –
4: I mean, it definitely, there's definitely moments for me where I where I just, he, I mean, as I said to, to you earlier, I I have a spotty knowledge of Jarmusch. I, I've not seen all of his films. I feel like I've probably hit, ha, seen the greatest hits. I have a friend back home, Simon, who's a very big Jarmusch fan, uh, and my friend Scott, both huge Jarmusch fans. They've seen them all. Uh, and I do feel like there's times when I feel like I'm missing something, like that, that it's kind of an inside joke that I'm just not entirely in on. Um, but I love, I mean, Down by Law, Stranger Than Paradise, uh, you know, Dead Man, I loved Only Lovers Left Alive. I thought that was oozing, just coolness and a great score and beautifully photographed and great performances. And like, to me, like that's him in the pocket when it's like funny, but like human, this movie feels to me that too. Like it is just, it's, it's, just, it's brimming with like life and, and, a, and, a and a sort of morality tale but it's also deeply funny and strange and beautifully photographed very well rendered like just i don't know he's he's a fascinating filmmaker um i didn't see patterson although i wanted to i heard it was great i don't know if you guys did either of you see I it? i also
3: saw that in france <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
4: that's right like you'll see Jarmish films <laughs> which makes sense he does very well
2: I I mean, he's taking yeah. the Concorde over this evening yeah. actually <laughs> okay.
4: But do you guys have favorite Jarmusch movies? I mean, this one's definitely like this is
3: the first one I saw for too. sure. You know, because then it was like you go to the blockbuster and then like is there one movie they'll have like you know Down by Law or something right next to Eight and a Half and you're like I saw another one.
2: <laughs> I don't um, think I realized at the time that it was a comedy about a mentally ill man who sleeps on the roof with pigeons. Yeah,
4: yeah. But I think I can appreciate that now. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting how. His mental illness doesn't seem, they don't hang a very bright lantern on it. it it's, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, I, I don't get the impression that he's a crazy person. He just seems eccentric. I, mean, I my, feel that
3: he's definitely fully nuts.
4: Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so does Roger Ebert, by the way. His review oh, right. is just <laughs> rife with, why does no one think this man is crazy? Like oh, He, really? has, he has like a PTSD
3: <laughs> yeah. reaction to this like terrible thing and like ends up like, being a crazy person who follows, like, a code of the samurai and lives on a, like, he, where's his family? Like, where's there's this shadow yeah, movie yeah. where you see, like, yeah. his, you know, his sad sister be like, come back home for Thanksgiving. Like, no, he's nuts.
4: Yeah, he's, I mean, truthfully, the very first line of Ebert's review is, it helps to understand that the hero of Ghost Dog is crazy. Oh well, yes. think, yeah, uh, <laughs> Ebert is right. always the best. R.I.P. He, he, he really—I mean, I'll, I'll read a little bit more of it just because we're we're here. But he says, "Well, of course he is. He lives in a shack on a rooftop with his pigeons. He dresses like a homeless man. It seems strange <laughs> that a black it. man would devote his life to doing hired killing for a group of Italian American gangsters after having only met them once." But then it's strange, too, that Ghost Dog lives like a medieval Japanese samurai. Yeah. The whole story is strange, indeed, that I've read some reviews in disbelief how movie critics are so hammered by absurd plots they can't see how truly, profoundly weird Ghost Dog is.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. Well said, Roger.
4: <laughs> yeah. I, you know, but I do think, and I, I'll read this last sentence, but Jarmish seems to have directed this with tongue-in-cheek, his hand over his heart and his head in the clouds. The result is weirdly intriguing. Mm. And I do feel like that kind of sums up the Weirdly whole Weirdly Intriguing is exactly what it is.
0: It's
1: yeah. he's so we we do Roger Ebert reviews almost every episode, <laughs> yeah. and he almost always is very wrong. <laughs> right. It's weird to have like him actually <laughs> yeah. nail something. He, he, he oh kind of no, gets like this movie. Yeah, it is a longer does. conversation. I think no one's a better yeah. movie watcher. We love Roger Ebert. That's that that's not really the point. Like we, I love Roger Ebert. Yes, we both love him. But and and there's basically no one who's more responsible for me even loving movies than Roger Ebert. That being said, like we go back almost every episode, and he he's he's really bad on issues of race. He's really bad on issues of gender. Yeah. He's really bad on issues of masculinity. Yeah. Like he comes from a very weird place when it comes to like um American Beauty is a really good example of how hard. He identified with the protagonist of American Beauty's desire to sleep with, um, what Mira I mean, Mira Suvari. And yeah. there's just so many things where you're just like cringing
4: reading his reviews. He also doesn't but, seem to really grasp outsiders. Hmm. Like I I, 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 I know that sounds kind of vague, but he does seem like a guy who, and I don't want to read too much into Rodri because I don't know him personally, obviously. But there does seem to sort of be this he was probably a little bit of a nerd and he probably felt like a bit of an outcast. And I'm not sure that he totally can wrap his arms around that. And sometimes films that kiss upon that kind of arena, he doesn't really know what to do with it. I mean, I think that he is a, he is a symptom of a time. Like as we read these reviews, Very much so. we see a guy who was in the pocket at that time, but it's been 20 years now. And now you look back on it and you're like, Roger you need to reassess American beauty. Like you need to reassess the way that you saw this through. No, he's not with us anymore. Obviously that's not the case, but I do think that when he nails it and this is a review where he does, and there have been reviews where he does, we're just mm-hmm. like, to your point, there's no one that sees movies through a better set of eyes than he does. I think so for what that's worth, but, um, so I'm just going to give the synopsis of Ghost Dog because I'm going to assume that not a ton of people have seen it. But uh, Ghost Dog, played by Forrest Whitaker, is a contract killer, a master of the trade, who can whirl a gun at warp speed and moves through his world like a phantom. Stealthy and effervescent? I don't, I don't know. Definitely not effervescent, I really, by the yeah. way.
2: A <laughs> so, bubbly performance from Forrest Whitaker. What I
4: do is I cut and paste the Google Synopsis And I never read it before I sit down. So there's times where I'm just like, so I don't funny. know what the hell they're talking about. It's a fun reveal. Yeah, it's <laughs> a fun reveal for me. Uh, in the spirit of the samurai, he has pledged his loyalty to a small-time mobster named Louis, who saved his life many years before. Ghost Dog opened, and Kenny and I are getting conflicting reports about the release of this film. But from my research, it opened in France on October 19th, 1999, and then subsequently in North America on March 5th, 2000. It will grow on to make $9.3 million on a 2. Nothing $2 million budget we made
1: $9.3 million. That's kind of amazing.
4: Kind of amazing. Ghost Doc has 82% on Rotten Tomatoes and 86% from critics, uh, from audiences. So it's how many critics. though? Always I always, yeah, it's always, <laughs> always I listen like to one of them
3: like media Like I'm not trusting that shit. Yeah, no, uh. it's,
4: it's, I, I, we use it as a barometer. <laughs> if, if nothing else, just to show like, yeah, you know, when you're in the middle, like this is a movie that obviously 82%, that's very high. But it's when we hit those, like, 60s and 70s where I'm just like, I don't know what yeah. the aggregate is here exactly. But um, a beloved movie. A movie that when you bring it up to people who have seen it, adore it.
1: And people who haven't seen it know nothing about it. And
4: mm-hmm. when you try to explain For it sure. to them, they're like, I'm not going to watch that. It's hard to explain. <laughs> so
2: it, what I would say after having watched it this morning, yes. and this was Manny's point first, so all credit to, is like many Jarmusch movies, it's <laughs> a movie that is somewhat about making movies. Yes. and. More than most, you know, in the movie, for people who haven't seen it, this isn't your usual take on the Italian mob. This is an Italian mob that is in its death throes, right? This is like it's like an old west movie, like the end mm-hmm. of the west, right? So and fair. and what's interesting is. It's about the – that's referenced very self-consciously by the characters. This is the end of an era. This is the end of a time. Uh, Every generation has a spirit that waxes and wanes. But it's also the end of an era for making that kind of movies, right? Mm -hmm. When you talk about this movie making $10 million, the idea that a Jim Jarmusch movie got wide enough release Mm -hmm. to make that money, the whole movie itself feels like the perfect 1999 movie in a way because it's like this is so – End of an era. End of an era. Yeah. The idea yeah. that you could could make a movie like this in ten million dollars of budget or people. Would and I it. saw
3: that yeah. movie at like at an AMC and Pico Rivera, so that was like a widely, like semi widely released movie. <laughs> really, like this would be like lost in the shuffle of like Netflix, like under the oh some yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's it's
4: Roma today, I guess, basically yeah. what it is. Which for good or well, for I'd bad,
1: that's the best version of this. Yeah, it's, that's the yeah. one that Netflix, Netflix gets behind. Like yeah. there's like they'll dump that's out true. so many movies. They that, make like, eighty movies a year that no one's heard of.
3: Like. You know who really likes Jim Jarmusch now? Like I imagine the audience is shrinking and shrinking as the years go by. You no, know? like
4: yeah, I think he and and forgive me. I, I, I'm curious as to um, what um, Only Lovers Left Alive did because it did have Tom Hiddleston in it yeah. at a moment, and I wonder. I'll um, it. Sorry, I'll find. It. I got it. Uh, that was a
3: movie that kind of looked like Ghost Dog.
4: It did. It did. Only it left did. Yeah. This is a bad example and proves your point. Uh producti- production budget of seven million, domestic gross of 1.8. Mm.
1: Which is so which way is more in line what I would have expected. I'm shocked this movie made $10 million. Because uh, Odin yeah. Lovers Left Love Behind was really well reviewed. Um in a time when Pete when John Mush is a better known filmmaker. Correct. Right. I would say I don't even remember Ghost Dog being in theaters, to be honest. So I'm really surprised that this made ten million dollars and Only Lovers Left Behind only made one point seven. Well,
4: I'm yes, I agree with you. I'm also surprised that Only Lovers Left Alive did not get a international release. Oh, that's How very could that strange. Be true, to me. that, I mean box office. Wow, for that towards. seems like
3: it's crazy. But that yeah. seems
4: really strange to me. Like memory, not even a UK release with Tom Hiddleston
2: in the in the lead performance. My memory of the Ghost Dog ad campaign is that it was heavily pushing not just you know the samurai plot. But the Wu Tang stuff. Yeah, that, it was the like Risa in that style. around
3: the time of I don't know what Belly was that year, what year that was. A but little like, earlier.
4: Yeah. I think.
2: But yeah, I think the RZA element was a huge part, probably, of getting it to Pico Rivera and to ten yeah. million dollars.
4: Okay, so just a uh, refresh here. Uh, I'm getting conflicting things. Wikipedia is saying that only lovers left alive made $7.6 million on a $7 million budget and did get a release in Germany and the UK and can. So there's no way it didn't get released in France. Consider it. So we're going to say that only lovers left alive did fine and that maybe it broke even. But point still stands, which is that ghost dog making this much money is surprising. Forrest Whitaker. As tremendous an actor as he is, I'm not sure that he's a box office draw. No. So it is surprising to me that 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 it does as well as it does. I, I mean, looking at Jim Jarmusch on Box Office Mojo, just in terms of his career and what his movies, as you can imagine, make basically no money. Um, but they also don't cost that much money. I mean, Dead Man costs, you know, basically, I think that cost $2 million. It made a million dollars. You know, uh, some of these movies that you're just like – who's who I mean uh coffee and cigarettes I don't know did you see coffee and cigarettes the Mm -hmm. I I saw that in the theater I remember seeing that in the theater it made 7.9 million Mm dollars you know like his movies I imagine are all sort of around that same point the same amount of investment versus the amount that's that's made back and I guess if you're looking for a push each time, yeah. it's it's worth I guess investing in his movies. It's you know. also
3: it probably brings people legitis, like you know, they become more legitimate. I was gonna say legitimacy, but I have trouble with that word. Um, <laughs> but it's true though. because it's like you're connected to Jarmusch if you're a financier, and if you want somebody else to take you serious to make their movies, it's like you made a Jarmusch movie. So even if you don't like make all your
4: money back, you're getting people to like make you know take you somewhat seriously well he's got real credibility yeah in certain you know in certain circles there's no question that he does i mean i think that a perfect example of that and i am not well versed really at all in hip-hop or rap or any of that but for Riza and him to to get in bed together on this movie i think is interesting i mean yeah. i imagine that i don't know if either of you are well versed in that world certainly more than i myself but they are okay cool uh i i think that that's Fascinating. That's those are two guys that don't that in my brain don't make sense and yet make complete sense in making this film.
3: It's also like New York art people, you know what <laughs> I mean? Like living in Manhattan yeah, sure. in very
4: fancy apartments.
3: I imagine like they've gone to some of the same parties, like especially Riza, because this is this was also the end of the Wu Tang Clan being like relevant. This is like really RZA, like becoming like you know bit with the acting bug and like I want to direct mm-hmm. and I want to write movies and like I don't really mm. you know the band is not the priority anymore
2: and. You know, yeah, this is like the beginning of the end of that, and also Jarmus didn't have this idea and then find Riza. Like, it, mm-hmm. it seems fairly clear. Like, well, I actually
3: saw what happened because while I was tying my shoes, I was watching the uh special features on there. Um, <laughs> and because this is the level of preparation you bring, like, <laughs> you have been getting stubborn, we all day. appreciate it. Um, but so. They were talking about Jarmush had, which is crazy. The whole time he's like, it's got to be Forrest Whitaker or no one, which is like, wow. All right. Some huge balls right there. Seriously? Um, and, it's yeah. also kind and of he weird. wrote it with him. Like they, they did it together. Like they developed the whole project and then they brought in Rizza and they're like, you know, let's all, and then they all three of them developed this whole thing together. It was like a whole. Like it wasn't that's just German.
4: That makes sense.
2: But even before they brought in RZA, you can't tell me he wasn't listening to Wu Tang when oh, he came up sure. with these ideas. Like, it's, yeah. who else was combining these tropes yeah, in the yeah, mid '90s yeah. other yeah. than Wu Tang? Yeah, like
3: samurai movies. Like you know, that's a, that's yeah. Italian
4: yeah. stuff. Yeah, I, it, it's it's such a weird mixture of all these things, and in a way that's like subtle and not subtle at the same time. Like I think about the first time the the Rashomon book shows up and I was like, oh, that's cute. And then it just, you see it throughout the, and you're like, yeah, that's the right thing to do. It's, it makes sense that it carries through the entire film, but there's just moments where he's just, he's folding all these things together. There's this great review from um, this BFI website, Film Forever. Uh, where this guy says, uh, Ghost Dog, The Way the Samurai's Jim Jarmusch, is urban crime drama about a self-stylized samurai who's fond of pigeons. It's a hip-hop movie, a mob movie, a martial arts movie, all rolled in one. I mean, he's taking, as you mentioned, so many different genres and and flawlessly
1: folding them all together. That's what I think is interesting, too. Like, I don't think it's, not to contradict you, I, 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 I think it's not subtle at all. Right? I don't think there's anything subtle about what's going on I think what's kind of kind of amazing yeah. is the way these seamlessly go together yeah. and this movie doesn't explicitly take place in New York it clearly takes place in New York um but that's that's that kind of what hit me is that in the new York – the 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 excerpts not the excerpts the um the boroughs that are in Manhattan basically so the outer boroughs
2: I think it's in New York by the way you think, well, it doesn't technically take place anywhere. Anywhere.
4: They don't say the name of the city.
2: But in the very first shot, you see first the credits roll, and then you come through the Lincoln Tunnel. And actually, as they come up, you can see the signs that say Lincoln Tunnel that way.
1: Oh, does it? Yeah. So it's this idea, and I think Newark kind of plays in this too. It's these New York suburban cities, Queens, Staten Island, obviously. This idea of black culture, Latino culture, and Asian culture mm-hmm. existing in the exact same areas together. Um, and very few movies... Have them intermesh the way they do in real life. Hmm. Most movies are kind of like do the right thing where they fight each other.
4: Yeah.
1: Um, Which also happens for sure. But I do think that a lot of – I do think a lot of the time they just kind of coexist. And in this movie, it coexists in this one character. I think that's really cool and interesting and reminiscent of what New York really feels like to me.
4: I don't know anything about New York, but, um, that sounds right. <laughs> I mean, I think that I can only watch, I can only speak to it from a filmic perspective and they all coexist quite well within the context of this film. Mm-hmm. So I, I certainly feel like you have to sort of, I don't know, you, you have to wonder not just about influences, because I do think obviously there is, you know, Kurosawa and any number of other, you know, filmmakers folded into this. But then also I was reading about the, the, um uh, the music in it and how one person says that the score is densely layered abrasive beats looped with samples of Oriental symbols crash in the flying birds theme as though ancient Japan has been filtered through a hip hop lens. It's raw hypnotic and neatly encapsulates the film's strange blend of disparate cultures. And you definitely feel that. Mm -hmm. And I think that you feel that across the whole film, but I think that in terms of the music itself, uh, it's so vital. Like I can't even imagine this film without, his music I feel like it just it adds not just a swagger to the movie which I think is incredibly important and it's a coolness factor which as I was saying to you earlier Jarmusch is so good at he he's his own brand of cool in a way that if you're open to him you're you're going to be impressed by it I think oh I thought you were gonna talk
3: <laughs> oh well <hip-hop, laughs> you open your mouth you're a hip-hop expert yeah uh well you know what's interesting about it is that it only happens in bursts. Like, it's not a fully, like, you know, wire-to-wire scored movie. Yeah. It's just, like, more sequences of, like, Wu-Tang music that sort of sets the tone for the movie. But there's also, like, long stretches of the movie, and this is what makes it boring to people who don't like this kind of stuff, is, like, straight silence. Like, if you like to see Forrest Whitaker loading a gun silently, this is a movie for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I mean, he
4: doesn't say a of Dialogue
3: for 37 minutes. No, you know, when you're talking about, like, different filmmakers, like... It's also kind of a a riff on a riff on a riff of directors. It's like he's riffing on John Woo, while well, who was also riffing on Jean-Pierre Melville, who was also mm-hmm. riffing on Kurosawa. So it's like he's he and he you know that's why it is. It's a movie about like it's a movie about art films, basically. Which you know, yeah, that's kind of the whole riff. I mean, part of it, but yeah.
2: And a movie about dying eras that I think in dying some ways era. is prescient in ways it couldn't have even imagined, right? Like another thing that was striking about that movie is there's all this talk about the end of an era and the energy that's lost at the end of an era. Um, for people who haven't seen the movie, the chapters are kind of bookmarked with quite pretentious uh, Forrest Whitaker readings of uh, samurai Which made
3: up. Like that's not actually a oh, real book. Oh, you're kidding. No, it's that's a, not a real
2: book? Uh, no, that's a real, it's book. A real book, but, I but think the passages, passages that he made are oh, wow. just like,
3: you know, fitting the yeah. chapters that mm. he needed.
2: Yeah. But it also felt to me like the movie presages the way the culture is going to change. Obviously, the movie doesn't know this in 2001 in a way that it can't even imagine it's doing. Like, it's truly the end of a cultural era. Mm-hmm. Um, like, even when he's saying
3: like one of the lines, like, uh, this is the end of everything or something. Yeah. Like you were talking about that building in New York. That's totally gone now. Like, well, that's that was right. like right behind them.
2: There's, there's a kind of a critical scene in the movie where for the first time you see Forrest Whitaker's character meet uh, Louie, the small time Italian crook that he considers to be uh, the master to his samurai and where they're meeting is in a park in Brooklyn. That if you go there today, it's in the neighborhood that used to be called Bushwick. Now people are calling East Williamsburg. Um, and it's a beautiful park. It's a community garden. And then back Uh, in 2019 you would find this large warehouse that has been converted into basically artist loss and to see it in 1999 with nothing but the broken windows and the broken down uh, you know, uh, parks strewn with needles. uh, It was really interesting. It's also the end of an era for New York. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of that, you know, you're talking about the boroughs and of course those boroughs still exist, but I think you are seeing a New York that, that barely exists anymore in that movie. Um, as a new yorker i was looking at a movie 20 years ago and feeling like this could be 40 years ago this could be 50 years ago
1: i totally feel that like in new york right now in real life manhattan has become not only manhattan but brooklyn parts of queens parts of the bronx um, parts of new jersey especially northern new jersey that even like hoboken is basically manhattan now they all kind of look and feel the same they've all been very kind of given this really kind of
2: yeah, this homogenized sheen.
1: sheen yeah this exactly this gentrification i don't really love that word but that's really what it feels like and the the world that exists in this movie i guess still exists but in parts of like no one in places no one ever said a movie right you uh, uh, jordan i don't know you like have driven through yonkers right sure yonkers kind of feels like this now yeah a little bit but like no one's talking about yonkers like it's like yonkers doesn't even exist so i think that's a really interesting idea
4: Um, It also really kind of hits home how 99 felt like a page being turned. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Not just because obviously the millennium was coming and what have you, but it did feel like there was some sort of a change of guard happening. It felt like a lot of people pushed out a lot of movies at once, um, you know, and you can't help but feel like something changed.
2: It's funny also how beloved this movie is, listening to the reviews you've read, because watching it, it felt like one of those movies that Jarmusch, Cronenberg's another one like this, it's a movie that is almost perverse in the way that it won't let anyone fully enjoy it. Yeah. If you're there for the samurai stuff, you're going to get upset. If you're there, yeah. for, like, right. Yeah. Cause right yeah. as you're getting to the samurai stuff, all yeah. of a sudden there'll be these 10 minute interludes with the <laughs> Haitian ice cream seller and the little girl who's going to become the next samurai. And like, it's daring you. My love favorite it. is the guy
3: building the boat. He's like, Hey, you building a boat? It's like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> He's yeah. like, stop bothering me. I
0: built building a boat. <laughs> I, I don't best. understand you. No
3: English. Fucking best.
1: I do. I love that boat in the middle of the city. It's amazing. I, I mean, but that's I, yeah. To me, all right. So I, that and obviously, you know, we've established Forrest Whitaker's crazy, but to me, this is about the weirdos of the New York. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's about the. It's a very. It's a very hackneyed idea. and It's an obvious thing, but almost no filmmakers actually go down this road. Every fucking weirdo on every block mm-hmm. has an eternal life has a story. And I love that we get into obviously Ghost Dogs, we also get into the ice cream cellar to some extent. And then there are little weirdos all over the place. Even Louis is a total fucking weirdo. Yep. The the mobster who <laughs> the mobster who wraps flavor flavor while putting mm. Baby powder. On That's his a ass. step too far, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> they put like, a
4: lot of stuff on yeah. his ass. I like
3: <laughs> I could, you know, I know it was like part of a thing, but the, the, the less old white people were happy, the better. I think. <laughs> I don't. I don't
2: disagree with that. Just a weirdo.
3: That guy
2: was weird. Although Apparently, all the monsters are great, by the way, those three well, we yeah, guys. in that, yeah, one yeah. Scene? Uh, that
1: scene's amazing. Yeah, but like the the guy screaming about the pigeons. That's such a pigeon. Yeah. I love the guy. They've been 1914. I love the guy who plays Pruneface and Dick Tracy. when he's like, Oh yeah. Uh, no, no, no. He's like,
3: the guy who sits back. He's down like, after. Oh, the poetry war. It's like, all it's right.
1: Poetry. I think the, I think the point about uh, the mobs, the mob being in decline, is an interesting one too. I, cause you know, we've done a lot of these movies. I don't know if we've hit a mob movie yet. Analyze Unless this <laughs> and analyze. This is a really good fucking example of this. At this point in 1999 of how ridiculous the mob was. The the mob was a joke. The mob was a joke. It was a punchline. Like basically people thought the mob didn't exist anymore to some extent and if it was used in movies we were making fun of it and then and the, it, sopranos, and then the sopranos came yeah. around and gave this whole new wave of let's take the mafia seriously Although, by the
2: way the first line of the sopranos is sometimes it feels like we're coming to the end of something yep oh yeah you know yeah. so even the sopranos i've always read as it's the last chapter of a novel <laughs> all six seasons are the you. last chapter and the last episode starting made from in the America,
4: end. it just feels right. like it's which, all come full circle which
1: it definitely was the sopranos is definitely about it's, to me that sopranos is definitely about a generation of people who are in decline yeah. and feeling America slipping away from them which is wonderful <laughs> and great um but yeah it, it was like the accurate.
3: comedic version of that though it's so hilarious that they're like have to they're like haggling over rent with the and also like they, oh. they're working out of the back of a Chinese restaurant
1: I love that um, well, it's every, like
3: there's they're so marginalized like they're just like they're basically like a social club more than an actual like uh, yeah. you know crew yeah
1: Yeah.
4: Um, and every gangster has got a for sale sign on their house. Right. Yeah. Like it's just, it's, it's all, it's all it's coming, coming down. It's coming the end. And I mean... And you mentioned this earlier, but like the Wild Wild West of it all, you know the final shootout between the two of them, which just feels obviously it feels like an, an old Western thing. They even basically say it; they put it in text. But <clears throat> again, another sort of reference to, I mean, obviously the samurai movies were yeah. basically just well, Westerns. like the Wild Bunch, like
3: yeah. that
2: moment when they're like
3: yeah. driving away and he's like bleeding to death. Mm-hmm.
2: Although it's uh, funny if it's a if it's an old West, the death of the West, it's the Italian mobsters who are the Indians, mm-hmm. right? Because. The black culture that they hate so much, that's the vital culture. It's mm-hmm. what we're hearing in the soundtrack. It's what even they find themselves unable to stop rapping or being intrigued mm-hmm. by, and they're kind of the dying culture. Well, so they're they can, fascinated with Ghost Dog. And his, right.
4: That in, in and of itself, uh, this this mysterious African-American figure that they can't seem to really get their heads around, that it will be their undoing. Yeah. It's it's really – I mean, it's 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 a really layered movie. I think it's also – as I think is the case with all of uh, Jarmusch's movies, beautifully photographed by his longtime collaborator, who's no longer with us, but Robbie Mueller, uh, who, or Mueller, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, I mean, Dead Man might be his pinnacle. That movie is exquisitely photographed. Um, this movie is well shot, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it has the same...
3: Also, there's like Lime. two movies you could show at the new Beverly, like in one night. Like, this one would yeah. be the second one for sure. But, but. <laughs> yeah, this is
4: the 10
2: o'clock. <laughs>
3: yeah, this is the one all the hipsters leave for, but I'm still there.
4: <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> but just even like, there was something that he did in it that I had, I'm not sure I'd ever seen before, which was this. this Backwards kind of jump cuts, while also pushing in, there was this weird yeah. sort of push and pull that I had never seen before in terms of the way that it was cut together. Um, very jarring, but also just like really arresting. It was relatively early in the film, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly, when he's stealing. Yeah, the it's car. when he's yeah, looking at the like, car, yeah, and exactly. it's like yeah. it's just really, it's just really interesting. Uh, you can you can tell that you're in not just an auteurs hands, but a very confident filmmaker's hands. Like th- th- at no point do you not feel like. If you are a person who enjoys filmmaking, you look at this film and feel like I'm in good hands. Like I'm I'm watching someone who knows what they're doing.
2: Absolutely. For, Even you know, as you were bad. saying, like he doesn't talk for 30 minutes. And then when the dialogue scenes do come, yeah. you can tell Moose is playing with the idea of like, yeah, I gave you 30 minutes of silence. <laughs> now I'm really going to be indulgent with these dialogue scenes. <laughs> like yes. it's going to be a combination yeah. of the kind of hippity hoppity dialogue that he insists mm-hmm. on having the Italians have. Mm-hmm. And then like the long interludes between the little girl with the books and the, uh, the, the ice cream seller. Yeah. Boy, he loves that French ice cream. He cellar. really does. I mean, yeah. I,
4: as much as the first time it happens, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it through the whole thing. The fact that they're saying the same things to each other, not
2: my favorite joke,
4: but I don't know if it's even a joke. I think it might be a joke. You don't think it's a joke. I think it might've started as a joke, but I don't think it ends as a joke. I, uh,
1: it's us say my it fa-
4: never
3: started and never ended as a joke. It's just every joke. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think? <laughs> but no, I I kind of like it, like I I could use less whimsy overall. Like in this movie, like no boat, like maybe less of that relation. But it was kind of interesting that it was also a movie about lonely people and like that dude's like an immigrant who doesn't speak English, doesn't seem to have any friends. And they have this like loose connection with this like recluse, crazy person who lives in like the yeah. room building. <laughs> and it's like, it really like, you know, all the scenes from taxi driver, when you see like Travis Bickle, just in his apartment, like, so, like if you understand loneliness, you understand what it's like to be inside of your apartment and very depressed. And clearly like ghost dogs depressed. He's not a happy man. And it's really interesting to see like the way Forrest Whitaker kind of plays that kind of like self imposed isolation. Like, he's a dude, he's not trying to go out and make friends because he's like, doesn't feel like he's emotionally, like, it's possible for him.
2: And also, look, uh, yeah, sorry didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, but look, no. some of that stuff, I agree, Kenny, might come off as a bit twee. Yeah, with, yeah that's right. But I, I do think, to follow up on Manny saying, it's a movie to some extent about communication and expression. For people in New York who, can be kind of marginalized and ignored. So, well, usually I think I might be turned off by the, we're saying the same thing in different languages, even though we don't speak each other's languages. So we don't know that we're saying the same thing in different languages. It's an effective way to show, like there are ways to communicate that go beyond understanding the words that we're saying to each other. Like there are deeper levels of of mutual understanding and, and yes, maybe that's a little bit of a, of a twee way to get that across, but it's effective for me. It's also a
1: man who's using pigeons to communicate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like,
2: I think you've kind of
1: sold me on that idea I think I think it is a really interesting kind of way because that is that is the final note of the movie more or less that ghost dog has made a connection with this guy despite the fact that they never are able to communicate with language. And I thought that was really great.
3: Yeah. I find it hilarious that his, like, ghost dog's, like, uh, Achilles heel is his distraction. Like, uh, like whenever he sees a bird, he's like, fuck, I can't shoot. There's a bird. He's like, oh, there's <laughs> another bird.
4: A bird's on my right. rifle. Like, might be the best I just needed one more on bird. bird. And he's then, like, everybody like, misses his whole target. They all go in the house. I, it, it is interesting to think about <laughs> the, the, the the journey that he – that Ghost Dog goes through from that moment in the alleyway when he's basically being beaten within an inch of his life and then seeing him on that rooftop with these pigeons in, in what could be described as a meditative state and most likely a, a depressed state. But I, I think that he's found this way to tap into the world and function um, for good or for bad. I'm not sure he's tapping in though. I think he's just coping. That, that I might feel be, like that, he's, that's
3: he's chosen not to that's be part of the world. Like, the, he's he is like he's a monk it, or a samurai. Yeah. He's like self-imposed isolation because this is the, the path that is chosen him.
4: Which I think is really, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. But I, I also think it's really interesting to think of what he must have been like. And it, it does all signs point to, obviously, some sort of mental illness, to be sure. But I just wonder if he felt like he was given a second chance, I mean, that's the whole thing with Louis, right? It's the idea that he spared me and I didn't die because of him. So I'm indebted to him. And now I exist on some other plane. Again, totally agree with you on the self, you know, but it's, there's some sort of, that's what's curious is like, there's a hole there like between
3: like, you know, the way that, that Louis explains, you know, the whole origins of ghost dog. It's like, he helped him out. Yeah. Didn't hear from him forever. (laughs) And then Ghost Doc just shows up. He's like, uh, you're my master now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> which is like 300 pound Forrest Whitaker at your door. The cornrows is like, you're my master now. Like <laughs> Louis was confused, yeah. but like yeah. that. That's what's really what I think is, you know, intentionally missing is like, cause Jarmush is not like these are not super well developed characters. They're more like types, you know, yeah. and. That the question of like why he's doing it is really in that whole time of like, why is he doing it? Like, w- really what happened? What, what formed him? Like, what weird fucking kill bill training did he do? But like, not really. It was just like yeah, a rat yeah. and a hobo. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> but yeah, he thought he was climbing yeah. up pyramids and shit. Um, That's no, nice but time. yeah, like what is what happened there? Like, why is he doing this? I mean, which is it, like, you know, not answered on purpose, but yeah.
4: Although, if you, if if Riza is to be believed, there is a sequel brewing. And I, I heard about That's this, what that's yeah. about. Yeah. You know? like he
3: totally sets it up like that's some wishful fucking. The little thing. girl, like, sure, like sure. the yeah. little girl sequel yeah. happening at the end. But it's like you know what? If the moment is now, definitely. Manny has a title. Well, oh no, let's not go. No,
4: <laughs> <laughs> or not. Come on, uh, no, let's uh, find uh, this. Go ahead. No, no, let's not. Okay. Well, I do think that. Um, <laughs> I I think that it's funny. It's, for, it's you, just
3: it's just it's inappropriate. Right? Okay. It's ghost bitch. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> I love that. You, I love that you finally broke.
4: I think that, um, and that obviously should be the title, obviously. But I, I think that tough there's to sell it these days. <laughs> tough to sell. You Depends brought up who's selling. You brought up Louis, which I think the more I think about Louis, the more tragic a character he is. You know where he lands at the end where he has no, he feels he has no choice but to kill him and whether or not ghost dog has created the scenario for his own death, like whether or not he's basically painted himself into a corner because he wants to die.
2: That's always the way I read it. And I've seen the movie yeah. three or four times until we watched it this morning. Yeah. And you know, how he says to ghost dog and I apologize to our 18 listeners who have never seen this movie, but for the two who have, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: No, no, that's 1,800 right. That's right. and yeah. 200, wow. however you want to
2: scale up those proportions. <laughs> right? yeah. um, I'd always write it that way. Yeah. But what I noticed for the first time watching it today was right at the end, you know, uh, Ghost Dog says to Louis, so you're going to run your own crew now, right? Louis, you're the last one left. And Louis says, not exactly. And then what happens? He gets back in the car. The girl's in charge, yeah. right? She's now in charge. And she's, I think, given that's the final orders that Ghost Dog needs to be killed.
4: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, here's what I'll say. Louis is not an alpha, clearly. So he's in need of someone to point him in one direction or another. But it still doesn't, for me anyway, it doesn't change the fact that he's a tragic character who who sees he has no choice but to kill basically his one minion, his one person that actually listens to anything that he does, which sort of goes to, to your point, which is he doesn't want anybody listening to what he does. So perhaps mm-hmm. that's part of what's going on here. But Louis seems like such a kind of he seems like a nice guy. He seems kind of like a father figure ish, you
1: know. He seems like a guy who doesn't really want to be in the mob. Well, he did something heroic. Yeah, like I, it, I they showed that three or four times, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was three times. They go back to the scene of Ghost Dog getting mm-hmm. beaten up by these random guys, and it's not a pretty. It's it's not an obvious move for a white guy in Newark to shoot another white guy as he's beating up a black guy. That is a heroic thing. But to they
3: were those other kind of white guys,
1: you know. Who who do you think they were? I have no <laughs> like concept. Those, like it was like blonde haired like really
3: shootable looking ones. They were like, super super <laughs> shootable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like that House of uh, Pain look. Yeah yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: They were probably wearing hockey jerseys. I can't yeah, remember. Amazing. Uh,
1: but no, it was like, quirks extras. <laughs> so I think there's something more to Louie than than I mean, just, the just the sweaters, idea so that I agree. Yeah, I I do. I think there's something more there. I also I thought it was an interesting scene obviously. It's a great scene with him and the three mobsters where Louie's kind of Forced to give to up, give ghost, up yeah. to give up Ghost Dog, and I really kind of felt a lot of sympathy for him in that moment um because, of course, he's going to do it. You know, he's, i we know where his loyalty he lies, he yeah. but uh, but he doesn't do it. In, he doesn't do it in such a way that you know signs his death certificate. Yeah, um, and I do think there's some kind of dignity to that too.
4: I mean, it helps uh, that there's no way to communicate with him other than through uh, homing pigeon. Yeah. So he's oh, he's he's saved by that a little bit, but. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting how this movie dances on this razor's edge of cartoonish and not, you know, these these mobsters get dangerously close to caricature sometimes. And I who
2: literally only watch cartoons, by yes. the way. Yeah,
4: <laughs> yes. I would say they're caricatures like, yeah. for me. Like- Except
3: for Louie. Even he's like, he's not fully developed. I don't know if anybody's like developed intentionally. Yeah. But, like, I don't know if Louis is like, he's more of a semi tragic figure, but he's not really a character. Like, he's just yeah. kind of, you're right. He doesn't seem like he wants to be there. Yeah. No, you know, like, he really doesn't. <laughs> he's like, he's like, guys, this doesn't make sense. This guy's killing people like perfectly. Yeah, like, why are we doing yo, why this? Are we getting like, like, of he's like, yeah, it's like,
4: it's, yeah. it's, the lack of logic in their scenario feels almost like a commentary on the lack of logic within the film yeah. itself. Um, and within their systems, within their system. Absolutely. Particularly, no, yeah. absolutely. There's also, it's funny you should say that. Cause like I, as you were saying, I don't feel like anyone has character development. I was sort of in my head trying to go through the characters and it is interesting how little backstory we have, right? We have a flash of this one, Sort of flash It's more point. like an origin story, right? Yeah. And then a giant gap of which we have no idea what, how he became Ghost Dog. We just know that there was this moment when he almost died. Louis saved him. Big gap shows up Ghost Dog, mm-hmm. which is interesting. You know, I, I you have to fill in the gaps yourself a little bit, which I respect. A, a movie that doesn't hold your hand and says like, I mean, he's like, like
3: a European influence director, and that's like the style. Yeah. It's like, hey, like you know figure it out like that's not, not going to help you <laughs> like yeah
4: which i kind of i mean it's like
3: antonioni not like hey let me tell you why this lady is like feeling weird around all these italian men who are giving her rapey eyes <laughs> like
4: yeah. she's not really giving you anything yeah. i mean i went to see uh, uh shoplifters when i over the holidays which is a beautiful movie a japanese foreign film that i really loved but i was and, and forgive me i haven't seen as many foreign films lately as i would like but whenever i do sit down in front of one i do find myself having to sort of Recalibrate, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, as a yeah. viewer, and be like, okay, so I can't yeah. just, I can't sit back. This this yeah. movie is forcing me to engage, and if I choose not to engage, that's on me. I, I respect that, and we don't see that enough, and you certainly don't see it in American film. So, someone like Jarmusch, you got to kind of tip your hat to. There's something to that. um There's, it's interesting. You brought up the cartoon thing because there's a. A whole Betty Boop is it, and and, and Woody, Woody Woodpecker, Woodpecker who you mm-hmm. see several times, another fucking bird. But like <laughs> it's it is just interesting how he really kind of these cartoon moments coincide with real things that are obviously yeah. happening within it. The one that really hit me was the Simpsons one, the itchy and scratchy thing at the totally. very end. The the guns that just get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you're just like fuck. First of all, the Simpsons is brilliant, but also just in that moment after that gunfight to see that, you're just like, what are, what the fuck are we doing? Like, but it's, it's just fascinating stuff. Nothing is nothing in this film is done
1: unintentionally. Right. That sure. was the, the itchy and scratchy move. <laughs> it's quite a bold move. And just because all the other ones that were kind of peppered throughout, um, our old cartoons and this, this trope has been established in other movies. I mean, one that we, that, uh, sticks out is um being there uh-huh right you have a lot of like times he's watching move stuff and it's cartoons there's that whole basketball Jones sequence um, but that's not that that that's been established using the Simpsons and particularly using itchy and scratchy uh, as your kind of final statement of the movie uh, really kind of threw me I'm really kind of I I, I don't know I it seemed a little easy and obvious to me in a weird way. I mean, it's not an easy and obvious move, but the the guns, the guns, the guns, the guns. Uh-huh. I don't know. I it, it really kind of do you think that's the final
4: statement of the movie, though?
1: Well, I'm just basically saying visually. Okay.
4: It, yeah, I mean, I think it's it certainly feels like one of the things he's saying, but then I also feel like it's a little bit antithetical to the fact that I've just watched a movie with with stylishly showing this man killing other people that does sort of be talking out of both sides of his mouth a little bit. Like we shouldn't be using all these guns unless you're doing really cool things with it. In which case like it's okay. Like there's a little bit of dissonance there, Mm -hmm. but yeah. uh, So you're totally fair to, to, to call it out on that. I mean, I think that there's, but I also think like it is a, that's a complicated issue. I, I mean, I think that there's any number of things that we aggrandize in cinema that we probably shouldn't. Um, but at least this film seems to be attributing a level of commentary and poetry to it that I think hopefully makes it seem a little richer.
2: I don't know. Is it fair to say the Ghost Dog <laughs> is the godfather of John Wick? Oh, 100%. Was, it's it, the same movie. Sure. It is the same movie. If you replace the cute beagle with a bunch of pigeons... <laughs> Like I mean, I movies where badasses go on killing sprees after killing their beloved pets, definitely. So <laughs> so it's a small subgenre, genre. Very
1: specific Jordan, sub-genre. Yeah. So much so, I Googled Ghost Dog, John Wick. Really, to try to see, yeah. If anybody had put that together, when the pit, when he goes back to his coop, and all the pigeons had been shot, <laughs> goes back to his right. Coop. That was to me. That was the John Wick story, even For though sure. it happened yeah. in the. Yeah, I think it happens around the midpoint of this movie. Yeah. Maybe a little later. It's pretty late do, in the game. Yeah, before yeah, he starts like killing hour. everybody. But. Yeah. um But yeah, I think it's the same DNA.
4: I do think, though. I mean, the gunslinger revenge story feels as old as time, right? I mean, I'm I'm assuming that it's, but uh, but it does seem very specific. But animal based, animal animal based
1: gunslinger. Yeah, I. One of my favorite scenes is when they're looking through all the pigeon coops. Yes, and they see the other guy. Yeah. Um, that's just so funny to me. That's that's their. Is that Native American guy from Dead Man? I haven't seen Dead yes, Man in ten yeah, years. Right, it's a it's nod guy. to that. Yeah. Okay, but it's so funny that that's their plan. <laughs> <laughs> you know that is is seven. that other guy
3: who gets killed? Carl Winslow, possibly. <laughs> Wait, you mean the other the other black guy that <laughs> the they shoot for? He looks just like Carl. Being Winslow. on a roof with yeah. pigeons, basically. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, I met Uncle Carl. Sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, I think Carl Winslow. Yeah, same guy. Yeah, same. Guy. You know, it's um, it's. When I see pigeons on a roof in a city, I always think of Mike Tyson, and it yep. is a guy like Mike Tyson who coops pigeons up yeah. in a city situation. And I don't know, Mike Tyson's his own. It's a hobby it's, for the mentally ill. It's a hobby. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm <laughs> getting. At. It's a hobby for the mentally <laughs> ill. Um, there's something, but but a, a particular brand of mentally ill who yeah. on one side extremely violent, and on the other side extremely sensitive, like Mike Tyson bloodies like Lennox Lewis's face and then kisses the blood after like this really happened in real life. Like he's just, I, I don't know. I think like the, where in Mike Tyson's trajectory was this movie? Because it does kind of feel like the only person in pop, in, in pop culture and culture who this even remotely reminds me of. Well, it's of definitely the first
3: person you think of
1: with like, with pigeons. yeah, pigeons, like I can't it. think
3: of anybody else, but I'm, I'm, I, I think, think in New York, else. it's kind of a thing, right? Like definitely
2: for crazy um,
1: people on roofs.
3: Well, you know, the pigeon flying <laughs> association would say different, but <laughs> like, <laughs> they think it's just for crazy yeah, people you know. on roofs.
4: Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. I, yeah, I, it's, it really, I will say I watched this movie. Unfortunately, I watched it in, in two, uh, in two chunks, but, uh, it, it just really stayed with me. I don't know. It's haunting. It's an oddly like, Hunting, funny, um, surprisingly violent at times. Although the, the it all comes bad to blood is funny. bad blood, but anyway, it's it's pretty like quiet, and
3: then like the last like thirty minutes or so, or like yeah. even more than that, like this like the last hour is just like yeah. fucking wall to wall violence. It really is. Yeah.
4: Which, and I don't think of Jarmusch as a particularly violent filmmaker. Um, I mean, there was a lot of blood in Only Lovers Left Alive, but they're vampires, and it's a different. It's a different thing. But yeah, I don't know. It, it I was I was kind of taken aback by it a little bit. Not not in like a prudish way, but just in it didn't seem like something that I thought of. Well I the was violence was
3: like super like itchy and scratchy, like shooting
4: somebody through the sinkhole. Like that that was is like It's you the know. best. When he was when it was going down, I was like, What the fuck is this guy? And then when it I was like, Well, no, mm-hmm. I respect mm-hmm. it. It's a great shot. But yeah, it's so it's Jordan made a great point about the blood. Blood doesn't go down. The
2: that blood looks really yeah. fake in this reading. Well, Also Oh, this this is so persnickety. No, I don't know
4: what I mean, but it's
1: it's true. It's a podcast.
2: In the yeah, in the final kind of assassination, right? He is down in the basement and he unscrews the pipes and he puts his gun up through the pipe and he waits for the guy to bend over the sink and then shoots him through the sink. But then you're shown that the sink is spattered with blood yeah. in a way so that doesn't make any up, sense yeah, because yeah, the yeah, yeah, the bullet would go through him, the splatters should be on the ceiling. But anyway, that's so persnickety. Yeah. It's a cool shot. It's a great shot. Blood on porcelain.
4: It's also you have to you got to wonder how plausible it is, but w- whatever it's yeah, cool. Does <laughs> it does
3: not seem well, plausible.
4: It does not seem particularly
3: yeah.
1: with the site. Yeah. But I, you know what care. I had never that's seen a before fucking hassle,
3: right? Just like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shooting
4: just
1: through regular. the window. Uh,
3: yeah.
1: But speaking of that, <laughs> I, I don't think I've, I've ever
4: seen the tape thing done before. Or he puts the, table yeah, under the, the like tape over the window. I like that.
2: Thing. So it the, keeps the entire pane from shattering. You yeah. put like a nice piece of duct tape on the window, and then you hmm. shoot through the duct tape. So oh, You just get a nice. I never seen that The see whole window that. doesn't explode. Yeah, that
4: guy's know he knows what he's doing. Yeah, you think he's a hitman or something? Yeah, yeah,
1: he's perfect. Always gets the job done. <laughs> I don't know we're perfect. trying to get rid of him. He learned a lot from that rat. <laughs>
4: <laughs> from Splinter. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's start with a plot, shall we? The, the plot. Let's just yeah yeah the story. Pretty classic. Uh, It is. It is very, I mean, I love the credit sequence that I believe that's the theme, right? That plays Mm -hmm. pretty much through it. It's got this really just, I don't know, it's very hooky. It's very interesting to me. I was talking to um, a friend of mine back in Toronto over the holidays, who's a composer. And we were talking about some of our favorite scores over the last couple of years or what I listen to when I'm writing, because I can't listen to anything with lyrics when I'm writing. So I tend to listen to movie scores. And the ones that Recently, I've loved, I mean, I really loved um, the Phantom Thread score, uh, and I really loved uh, some of the um, uh, Trent Reznor scores. I find they're very kind of like atonal, so it's easy for me to write to them. But both of those have like hooks within them. And it's just interesting, you're seeing more and more mm-hmm. pop artists and more, you know, musicians in the, the more sort of uh, poppy sense, finding ways to keep a hook in there and how key that is At least for me, when I'm listening to a score, a theme, I also obviously I listen to the the, we both listen to the Blank Check podcast and they talk a lot about, you know, Danny Elfman recently with Tim Burton and how potentially no one's better at a theme than Danny Elfman. Mm, For sure. You know, what I mean, you're like, I get what this character is by this one riff and you don't hear that as much anymore. You know, I I, I think that, you know, as I mentioned, two scores that I love that do have hooks, but you don't hear themes. Like, I think about the sheer tonnage of superhero movies that we have in our lives right now, and I couldn't hum you one fucking theme to any of them.
2: Do they even have them? Like, do they still try to do? Like, I remember in music education when we were seven years old, right? And I don't know if this was true for you guys. The first thing I remember is Peter and the Wolf. Right, They would always play you Peter and the Wolf mm-hmm. and they would show you, like, the duck is the oboe and the clarinet yeah. is the <laughs> I remember that too. fucking wolf. <laughs> yeah, I don't really yeah, remember yeah, now, yeah. clearly. But, but like each instrument was for, like, a, yeah. But it feels like an obvious thing to do, to yeah, have Egypt, these leitmotifs yeah. that go through for, like, that's the Iron Man song, but it feels like a lost art. I agree. It really does. You know, I I
4: was thinking about the Marvel, they're doing, on Blank Check, they're doing a whole thing on the, the Marvel franchise, so they're going through all of them. And they obviously started the first one, which is Iron Man. And Iron Man doesn't have a theme, they they used the song Iron Man yeah. a bunch as his theme. Well, oh, which yeah. in
1: and of <laughs> itself was was a choice at the time, yeah. right? Because the Batmans and the Supermans and all these other guys didn't use pop music. And yep. did, you know, you had the song Iron Man and you made that choice. But I do think to your point it has been detrimental to the whole series. Like, there's no Black Panther theme? I guess there is. I yes. guess Kendrick Lamar did the whole album for that, but I don't know what it is. I don't know what the song is.
4: I don't know what it is either. But I mean, I, maybe it's a tonnage issue. Maybe it's just that there's so many of them now that they can't possibly come up with a theme for each of these individual characters. I mean, Aquaman sure as fuck didn't have a theme. I, I watched that digital screener and couldn't tell you what the theme is to any of it. But you know, it's it's just it's it's very interesting. It's so
1: bold the of them to send on a screener, don't you think?
4: <laughs>
1: like, did you on. consider it? Like, who who are you, who are you
4: fooling? <laughs> <laughs> anyway a billion dollars later
1: oh yeah um, that's
4: true but I will say this this has a hook and you you feel it it's got a vibe and you and again he is a pop artist for all intents and purposes I mean or at least a popular musician and I think that knowledge that RZA has of like knowing how to get a hook and knowing and it's the, the end of those. like
3: New York rap sounding like that like that it true? would change like one year later it's like all like Jay-Z stuff and like really you know, it's like it was like that was really the end of kind of like grimy beats being a I mean really? you know that era of it like 90s kind of stuff
2: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
4: nice dress uh, it's a it's a t-shirt
2: until you tried it on
0: same goes for your health care
4: Um, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. It really, really worked for me. I think it's a beautiful score. Um, despite despite the fact that I agree with you, I wish there was more of it. Like, I wish that we just had more of it in the movie.
2: I would love to know how Rizzo weaseled his way into that cameo at the very end of the movie
1: with the brass knucks.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like, like, was that always, <laughs> just, was That's that just in the character. contract? It was like, yeah, look, I'll do the score, but I get to look like a badass in camo. <laughs> Passing right. forrest Whitaker, well,
3: right? in the special features it said, and in his feature film debut, Marisa, <laughs> <with> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I thought he just like walked and said one <laughs> line to Forrest Whitaker. So where where was Wu Tang at this period of time? I, I extremely like I popular, and they, and they forever just,
1: came out like. Ninety
3: seven, yeah, ninety seven, and, and people weren't really digging it that much. It did like well, but it wasn't like world shattering like the album before. So it was and they all the just started side doing their, their the, that yeah got
1: into. Like, they the all started Rekwana doing their own thing. And, yeah, like what else was like kind of
3: nobody really kind of did anything big until like Ghostface Killah started getting all his like mid two thousands like records going. Like there was like they made other records, but they weren't like they had one in like I think two thousand and one or two thousand and two. Um. And nobody liked it because that's when like Rizza started being like, I like the Beatles now, like shit like that, which I hate when fucking rappers do that. That's when I'm out. Kanye did, like, well, Kanye
1: did a song with Paul. As
3: soon Kanye. as you like the Beatles, I'm leaving. <laughs> um, you hear that, Jordan? Like, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was uh, very different for them. Like that was like when they still had like woo wear and shit like that, like yeah. clothes and like they were, they were at the top of their game like commercially, but like that was really kind of the end of. You know, it always is. The and end what of year is that, that. that? Like, this is 99, so this is really, like, kind of the end of it. Really? Know? Like,
4: yeah. I, he's actually, I got to say, he's a good actor. I really liked him in Funny People. RZA. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Working at the deli with, uh, yeah, yeah. with Seth Rogen. Like, he's got a very, like, I mean, listen, I don't know that he has range, necessarily, but in that role... I just hate thinking of the awkward dinner that he had with Seth
3: Rogen when he was trying to be so cool with them. And he's like, you know, like, why why don't you just want to be in my movie or something? Like, just what got him the part was just like, I don't know.
4: I have no doubt. Yeah. But I do think that he is a surprisingly effective actor uh, just in terms of like. He's got a real, I don't know, there's a charisma about him. He's obviously not in this movie enough for me to gauge He
3: represents wisdom, sort of. You
4: know, like, rap wisdom. Yeah, he represents a guy who might be able
3: to beat you at chess. Like, yeah. You know what? I have a feeling that he's terrible at chess. And this is all bullshit. Careful, Careful. He's no grandmaster.
4: Oh, now now he's going to come out of the
1: woodwork. He's going to make you play chess with him. He's done a lot of movies as an actor. And he's done really? a lot?
3: Yeah. He directed that one movie that nobody saw that was Brick something? Brick Mansions
1: maybe? He's done 40 movies. Was that just the movie with actor. Paul Walker in it? He's, and he's like he doesn't oh yeah, sometimes he plays like 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 the guy at the deli or things like that. I I yeah. I think it's a very I don't know. I I also, he seems to be best friends with Quentin Tarantino. He's been kind of co-opted by Hollywood in a very, oh, yeah, totally. very bizarre way, though, where they've kind yeah. of let him be siloed off, Look, but also call on him when they want to. It's him. the
3: unfortunate thing about Hollywood and authenticity is sometimes they're just we like, authenticity
1: Hey, problem? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you hear that word and it's just like he
3: is, I'm sure he hears it. Like I said, at that road, Seth Rogen was like, Oh, you know, casting you would be so authentic. And he was like, Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, authenticity is definitely, like, symbolic, and if you cast Rizzy, you're getting, like, a wise hip-hop dude who represents, like, street credibility of New York. Even though, like, he really doesn't, and he hasn't for, like, 15 years, but he still has that cred, and it will probably live on forever. As long as, like, Wu-Tang exists, which they still kind of do, like... I never saw his movie. Did anyone see his movie?
4: Was it called Brick Mansions? Uh, the, Rizzo's movie was called like the Man with the Iron. Fist Oh, the Man. Yes, uh,
3: Man with the Iron. Fist
4: Tarantino produced it. Yeah. yeah, I never saw it. Yeah, the man, with, man, with the it. man with the Iron Fist. Man with Iron Fist. Yeah, curious. Uh, maybe it's good. I don't know. Isn't Eminem also in Funny People? Now that I
2: think about he it, he is. Yeah, but he
4: plays yeah. himself.
1: Uh,
2: and he has like five lines. It's it's like, like, it's the like movie a, is all about
4: with Adam Sandler. It's also very yeah, and fun. and he yells it at Ray Romano or something like that. <laughs> Probably.
3: <laughs> it's, that movie That's a is, weird that
4: movie. <laughs> I like so I like forty
3: five minutes of funny people. The first forty five, yes. yeah,
4: yeah. I like it. I like it basically until it comes to its natural conclusion, and then it yeah. goes on for another forty five yeah. minutes in yeah. North uh, California for no good reason. But, but I also I
1: like Eric Bannon in that. I do too. Like I think he's funny. Like but I think there was the a Northern California co- co- stuff. I know. I yeah. think there was yeah. a good way to end that movie totally. with those characters. I just don't think they did it. I was I just think,
3: watching yeah. uh, Bravo the other day, which is because I love Vanderpump Rules. Sure. Yeah, there was a commercial for a show called Dirty John that Eric Bana is the star of, and I was
4: like, dude, "What happened
2: to the Hulk?" Dude, I've, I've watched yeah. the first two episodes. It's brilliant. brilliant. Really?
4: Have you Have you listened to the podcast though? That it's based on? No, I haven't. Okay. I uh, the podcast it's based on is apparently
2: incredible. I'm sure the podcast is better. When I say brilliant, I, say that, I mean I'm it's a piece work. of trash, but it's like a brilliant watch. You guys, <laughs> like, I'm more concerned with Eric Bana's career. That's, no, that no, that's the whole fair. <laughs>
4: He had his moment and it slipped through his fingers.
3: It was fingers. just the unfortunate Hulk. It wasn't his fault.
1: I, by the way, Jordan, I blame Aang Lee. I've watched two episodes of that too. I also think it's brilliant. Yeah, I want to see it now. I think it's exactly, like what, it's exactly what you're saying. I want to go on yeah. record and that. I want to it's, talk about Dirty Johnson. It's John on for like second. Second. It, It's on Bravo. Oh, Bravo. It's on, like, on Bravo. It's like, it's, yeah. like, it's yeah, exactly yeah. what Bravo should be doing. I wish there were more shows like it. It's the easiest hour of television to watch.
2: My problem with television. These Second days easiest. Is, what's a, have a, you seen the first episode of Lindsay Lohan's Mykonos Beach House? Nope. That's, <laughs> that's, the, uh, that that's great. the easiest hour of television. <laughs> I, I watch this TV, is that? So
1: I'm so bored watching no, okay. almost every show, including shows I like. And to actually have a show that like breezes through the 45 minutes is wonderful. Because I I started listening to the podcast and I've stopped because I'd rather watch it on TV. You
4: heard it here first, guys. Yep. <laughs> Kenny Neibart passing up podcasts for.
1: Oh, pictures. yeah, podcast uh, just dying medium. <laughs> <laughs> they Perfect.
4: Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, Eric Bennett, to answer your, your question before we go back to the plot of Ghost Dog, but uh, <laughs> I do think he had a moment – short
2: one I, yeah. it, it was um, short yeah. munich munich <laughs> yeah. was just like that guy of... who
3: played jesus in the mel gibson movie that was no, short. Sure. Yeah.
2: well he had, Troy. <laughs> he had a longer moment than no, jim carol yeah people jim jim turned C- on him Cabizel? Cabizel. yeah, yeah. I, I
4: think i'm, I'm looking up uh, eric Bana as we speak i think that eric Bana had i think part of his problem was he is funny and he started as apparently a quote-unquote comedian in australia not that you know, I didn't. When I say "quote unquote," I just don't know that he was a stand-up. Is no, what I'm I, I think
1: he was like a David Schwimmer. Was he? I think he was like. I think he was on Australia's Like Friends. Yeah, something like that. Oh, okay. But it's, <laughs> like a, it's a handsome David. <laughs> the Schwimmer.
2: Australian Ross. Uh, it yeah. does. It does
1: feel like there was this
4: moment when everyone was searching for kind of the next leading man, mm. and it kind of felt like Black Hawk Down was some sort of petri dish where everyone was going to like. Oh yeah, that like. Everyone gets a shot off of Black Hawk Down, and Hulk was his shot. And I I, I kind of stan Hulk. I, I think Ang Lee's Hulk is a very interesting, messy masterpiece. But it's then Troy, Munich, Lucky You. It's just like bang, bang, bang of just
1: – Lucky You, the Lindsay Should-
4: No, Drew Barrymore. Wait, Munich's great. Oh. Yeah, well, I like Munich. Yeah, Munich's good. Except for the, the yeah. sex scene at the end, but the sweaty sex scene is – It's not
2: a a perfect movie, but it's a good movie.
4: But I guess my, I guess my point is more that I don't think he's just, he's when he's intense, he's very intense and I'm not sure that he's,
3: he just looks like every other dude to me. Like when I see Eric Ben, I'm like,
2: yeah, but you I'm have. Like, white I don't
1: know.
0: I really do blindness. think is that Jim
3: Caviezel. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, yeah,
1: you have white. Person. I'm just well, letting you know. I do that that I, I cannot I like tell there why are people are A bark. lot of guys who look exactly like this guy. I agree. But, with I, you. know, like, Kenny, Jordan, you but I know, like Kenny Jordan. You guys look different. We look. <laughs> but, yes, true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but different. different. got glasses. <laughs> not that. <different>. <laughs> <laughs> but the, how about now? Oh wait, We're the exact same height, and grew up one minute from each other, and are like three weeks apart. But wow. Like it's this, not. It's not that much, but it's. But it's very, close. That's, it's a lot. Yes, that was just a small exaggeration, but just a small one. But Eric Bana, who is not in this movie, but I love discussing this, is um, like his problem to me. It's it, to me was he just never should have pivoted to comedy at all. I think he took the piss out of himself, right? I think that funny people performance undercut what he was trying to do and what people were trying to do with him. I think mm. he should have just. Went hard after serious movies, dramas, and more hard action movies, and then he could have pulled to Colin Farrell ten years later and been in the lane he wanted to be in. But now I think people don't know what to do with him.
4: I agree with you on that. Robert I think does. that he. I think 2009 was a weird year for him. He had Star Trek, Funny People, and Time Traveler's Wife. Mm and it was like a murderer's row <laughs> movies I haven't seen oh wait wait was he the bad guy in <laughs> the first Star Trek nah, he's J. pretty good J. J. in that he is pretty good yeah. the role is underwritten yeah. and he's but he's good in it but you can't you, you can't, can't, tell it you can't it recognize he's the man in wait the which man? one yeah. right. and
1: then you've got funny the people first new Star Trek oh, the first the no. JJ one the first new Star Trek
4: yeah yeah, yeah. And then Time Traveler's Wife, which I love the book, does not adapt well, and he's miscast. He's just, I, I, to your point, and you put it perfectly, I don't think Hollywood ever knew what to do with the guy. And unfortunately, now, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, he's on Bravo in Dirty John.
1: Fortunately, for those of us watching. He's doing, he's doing a great job. <laughs> Occasionally substitutes Australian accent. But aside from that. <laughs> really?
4: Yeah. But is that intentional? No. You don't know?
1: You don't Who know, know John could Actually, be like, he's probably from that's like Belfast. a fair point <laughs> because I didn't finish the podcast.
4: I have no idea. So there you yeah. go. That's true. It's possible that it's all a, part of the he plan. He is a con man.
1: It's amazing. kind of. All right. What happened to Ghost Dog? Yeah. Sorry. I didn't
4: mean to get us off of track. <laughs> uh, Ghost Dog. Okay. Um, so basically we open on Forrest Whitaker doing narration from this samurai book and um, and we realize that he's the retainer of Louie, a local mobster who saved Ghost Dog years earlier. We talked about all of this, obviously. Uh, he, so he he interprets. He lives by the code of the samurai, interprets and applies the wisdom of the Hagakuri. Hakuri? I don't know. I'm sorry. Please, Hagakuri. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't my, my
4: apologies. <laughs> uh, I, here's the other thing that I love um, the use of dissolves in this movie is really beautiful there's like this dance that the movie is doing which I think is really interesting and there's a lot of that in this what feels like eternity of him driving at the beginning just driving around listening to music and, well he only
2: steals cars that will have a CD player which I love right, that he can turn yeah. up to 21 yeah. which is what he does every time
1: <laughs> there's some there's some thing where he has the special key to unlock all these luxury cars that's a thing I think that's a part of it yeah
4: yeah that, that it's like some sort of an electronic code. It's that like an electronic
1: skeleton key yeah, yeah, basically, but yeah. obviously you need to have that level of car. Yes. To unlock that. But Correct. Yes. So you always can put his CD in with his
4: theme. Right. So then Louis tells Ghost Dog to kill a gangster named Handsome Frank, uh, who is sleeping with the daughter of a local mafia boss, Vargo. And then the girl is in the hotel room reading Rashomon. Ghost Dog arrives and kills the gangster, and he kills him in a very specific way. That the, uh, I guess that the samurai do in terms of that he shoots him in the heart, and then somewhere else, and then in the head. Like there's like a whole.
2: Also, John Wick, by the way. (laughs) By the way, just respectfully, in my humble opinion, handsome Frank, not that handsome. Yeah, he's not that handsome. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's ironic. I mean,
3: compared to the other dudes, though, right? (laughs) (laughs) He's the most Like Vincent Argo isn't like the hottest
2: guy. (laughs)
3: RIP. Uh, it's true.
2: For people who haven't seen the movie, every other mobster looks IRS. like one of Uncle Junior's older friends. In yeah. fact, they
3: were probably at some point. Yes, yeah,
2: for sure. <laughs> uh, so
4: then there's this moment where Ghost Dog sees a guy trying to rob an old man with groceries, and then all of a sudden, the it's man like, knows he's Kung like, Fu. boom. Oh, he's good. He's all right. <laughs> <And then laughs>
3: he he's he's like, just beats the cool. shit out of that dude. <laughs> I, Kung I, Fu.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I cracked up when that happened. My daughter runs in. What's so funny? I'm like, <laughs> to watch this. <laughs> Did
2: she like it? super like, into that part. Like, it's the subversion it. of cinematic no expectations, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. It was just,
3: I totally didn't see it coming. It was
4: great. It was a fantastic moment.
3: Also, he kind of looks like the old man from the Six Flags commercials. Yeah. Or, <laughs> I like to imagine it's him doing, dance. doing yeah. kung fu. Yeah.
1: Or when Spike Jones is the old man in the kick ass movies. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, that's another, to me, that's just another example of like, you never know what these people are,
4: what's going on in their lives. Maybe they know fucking kung fu. Yeah. It's true. So, Who knows? Anything's possible. Yeah. Uh, to avoid being implicated in the murder of a made man, Vargo and his associate, Sonny Valero, decide to get rid of Ghost Dog. Louis knows practically nothing about Ghost Dog and the Hitman Communication. It's only through homing pigeon as we discussed the passenger pigeon thing where he's just screaming it. I still don't know why it's just cause he says homing pigeon and then he you knows screams passenger pigeon. Anyway,
2: you know, I'm not sure that guy is totally with it.
1: <laughs> I was getting the feeling <laughs> he's been sharper. Fair. Yeah. Fair point. Not to skip ahead, but my favorite moment is his death and Forrest Whitaker's reaction. Yeah. But, oh yeah, when he has a heart attack Yeah, he has a heart attack yeah. and Forrest Whitaker has two guns at yeah, he goes, And he just yeah, drops one the one yeah. that was Trained on that guy yeah. um, I, I spent a significant amount of time Trying to figure out what this homing pigeon <laughs> Passenger pigeon Carrier pigeon thing is Because yeah. in my mind I, I really hope that like passenger pigeons were big enough mm-hmm. To like, you could ride them mm-hmm. But you cannot um, Passenger pigeons are just other pigeons Basically They're just pigeons I don't know why. I don't know the (laughs) distinction. I don't really understand it. But I I think that certain pigeons can be trained to do this. But that's true today. It's as true today as it was in (laughs) 1999. (laughs) As far as pigeons have come, you can still do it.
4: Amazing. Uh, so then we get some flashbacks of Louis saving Ghost Dog's life. We have a really nice sequence, a beautiful sequence of Ghost Dog practicing with his samurai swords and also whipping out his guns like samurai swords on the roof with all of his pigeons around. This
2: it's movie. Uh, Sorry we never got to see the samurai sword in action. Like he only practices yeah, He really, never uses yeah, it on he's anybody. a gunman in real life. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway.
4: I guess there's some, I guess at some point Jeremish was like, I mean, he's fucking going for the tennis of the samurai. Like, guy's gotta have a sword at some point, right? <laughs> I don't know. The scene with the dog staring at Ghost Dog in the park, <laughs> them just staring each other down
2: for no good reason. Yeah. I think that dog is foreshadowing his death. I can't tell you which mythology tells you that a dog looking at you means you're about to die, but right. it's one of them. It's like your cat from Go. Yeah. Like my cat. <laughs> Go's Go.
3: your movie. Another great movie. Go. Go. Like I like mine. Go. It's not good, but I like it. I think Go's a <laughs> bit. Be- it's
1: okay. He feels a bit too. Yeah, it's a shame. I, 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 <laughs> I remembered it being better. Yeah. like I
3: still yeah. remember it the way like I felt when I saw the movie. movies. Like, oh, this is so fun. And then like I yeah. saw it and I was like, oh, no. But partly done. that
2: but. was because I wanted to be able to go to raves and do acid.
3: Yeah. yeah go like,
2: was... Yeah. The, the go late, late 90s song. of it
1: all isn't great. The rape stuff. Go was the third movie we did. Yeah. And Go, when I saw it the One of the ones I listened to. Oh. oh, there you, Thank you go. You. I, wa- I walked in and out. and walk- <laughs> I'm best. sorry. I walked out, and I walked right back. Bought in. another ticket. I walked out. I saw it right, right again because I loved it so much. And seeing it again for this podcast was so disappointing because I hadn't seen it in a long
2: time.
4: Yeah. The first – the first Act chapter is still amazing. Yeah, the Sarah Polly stuff at the top of it, I think, is fantastic. Great. I think that holds up pretty well. So bad.
2: The yeah. the Jay Mar going no. over the dude, not, not funny. Not great. Just a gay panic joke. Doesn't hold up well. It's just one giant gay panic joke. That's not great. No, it's amazing how much when you go back to the nineties, it turns out homophobia was just fine. Rampant. <laughs> Rampant. It also amazing, like how
3: much Jay Moore has physically like deteriorated. Since nineteen ninety nine. Holy wolf. shit,
1: did he die
4: already? It's kind of like- skull <laughs> wolf, by the way, looks the same. It looks the same. <laughs> I mean, so do a lot of those
1: guys. And and I always thought the Vegas chapter was so cool. The Vegas chapter it's is not so cool. bad. It's so lame. Yeah. Oh, that's it's oh. just the worst. <laughs> it's beyond this. It's unwatchable. Too and much fat boy slim music. Oh, so much fat boy. <laughs> you slim. run through the Sarah Pollack chapter, which is so good. You go to the Vegas thing, which is like exhausting and how bad <laughs> yeah. it is. And then you go to the Scott Wolf stuff where you're like, Oh no, and a whole other chapter that really is just about like and that fucking a british
4: patch. guy i hate that guy the british guy
3: no the Desmond british Deschew. guy like, hey, oh let's go Vegas, like that fucking dude he's yeah. like, so oh, so frustrating i've never been all, all i remember all is my that Maid's contact go.
2: lens plays prominently in that part
3: in the vegas part the oh yeah, yeah. i like yeah. that but it's uh, just the story they're telling it's a, story that the uh, john's armenian market plays it's, into the, the thing that's like the location oh, of the yeah. supermarket that is that's a section
1: i like and i hate that yeah, scene <laughs> I like the location.
4: Yeah. But you didn't like the, the – the, I
3: the, hate the dancing. The dance, macaranda dance. The macaranda it's, dance. Oh, no.
4: That's not good. The movie just – Yeah, it's just it's. – We've had a couple of these where they're just real time capsule relics where you're just like this was a moment yeah. when all of this was cool. Go more than anything. Mark. And then yeah. and then it, for just, sure. it just disappeared on us. It just yeah. got away. From yeah.
1: that, I mean just to bring it back to Ghost Dog, like yes. that's not how that – Like a lot of the stuff that are, that, that's present in this movie is very much of a moment. And it, this movie is a time capsule, but it's not like – it doesn't have that kind of like gross nostalgia thing, mm-hmm. thing that
2: Go has, like something that we're all kind of embarrassed by. Mm-hmm. Well, in some I mean, ways because Ghost Dog is one of the very few movies I can think of that is self-consciously about how moments fade. Yeah. Right? Like one of the themes of Ghost Dog is – every yeah. moment has its energy and that energy in fact there's one of those interludes where it even says something like that's why each generation needs to do their best yeah I'm paraphrasing poorly yeah but it, that's an interesting that's theme true. compared you don't see that very often
4: this is a very introspective film you know for uh, for many reasons um but it does feel like and we've talked a little bit about this we learned a lot about this just in terms of like 99 in macro and sort of toxic masculinity and all the various sort of themes that have become very prevalent to us, that sort of seeped into a lot of these movies. And this movie, you know, I, there's really only what I guess there's two female characters in this movie. There's probably North a of total a of like six lines for women in this. Movie. There's not a lot of, but I don't necessarily feel that the daughter is poorly written. I mean, she's no worse she, off than anyone else in the movie in terms of. She doesn't get any lines
3: except for like two lines. I feel like at the end where she's just like. That's but my she book. has a. But like, she has a. That's vibe. my book, yeah. Like. She has, she has a vibe. She has a vibe. She has a vibe for. She has a classic film vibe. There's like, a
4: femme fatale almost yeah. vibe to her, which I mean, for good or for bad. That I mean, listen. Forrest Whitaker doesn't say anything for 37 minutes in this movie. I'm not sure that lines of dialogue are necessarily the the best barometer. I do you think she
2: could do better than Handsome Frank?
4: she should set her sights a little bit higher yeah Yeah. well she dodges a bullet twice you could have killed her twice and doesn't I guess she is. She never has a point of view
3: like every other character does and she doesn't like little girl has a point of view like she's probably the one character that you know is a woman who has a point of view like actually probably the only other character yes I agree Um, but everybody else you know they control the scene and she's just kind of sitting on the couch being like oh there's ghost dog um, yeah. Can I have no, my book back? No, I need <laughs> no. to pass on the this terrible like tradition of mental illness onto an eleven year old girl. Oh.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh. Um,
4: so now we meet the ghost, future ghost bitch uh, uh, ghost uh, ghost dog meets or we meet uh, Raymond, his French speaking ice cream man. Yeah, uh, I actually I love the design of the ice cream truck. It's awesome. The punch of the colors, just the way that it looks. You can tell that there are moments where. I don't know if it's a money thing. I don't know what it is, but there's certain sets and certain things that you can really sense that Jarmus really put like
2: time into. And like you said, tongue in cheek and hand on heart. Yeah he both very much obviously cares about that character yes. and cares about that character's mission, for lack of a better yes, word. Yes, yes, And yet, there's an absurdity to it, right? Like, the way that the truck is decorated yes. is very European. Yes. Even the flavors for his ice cream are written in French, even though he's mm-hmm. selling in the middle of what I think we can assume is Central Park or something like it. Yep. And it's an interesting contrast between totally. the real and the not quite real. Well, you can just tell that
4: there are things that are very that, – that, that he – that means something. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, I mean, when I think about how much of this movie is exterior, I mean, it's a, it's an exterior heavy movie, which as we all know is expensive. Um, so he kind of picks his targets when he does real sort of production design, if you will. And I do feel like the ice cream truck is one of those, uh, one of those great locations. Um, then we, then we got the guy building a boat on his roof because, um, (laughs) The producer's like, cut that. He's like, no way. The boat yeah, that's stays.
3: Exactly, Forrest Whitaker and the boat.
4: That's, like, a qu- <laughs> that's a quarter of the budget. Just yeah. that I, I mean, when I, cause there was a moment where it was like looking at it to see like, no, they fucking built that on a roof. Yeah. Like they just, there was no way to cheat yeah. that. Yeah. God bless them for
2: what? Like, 15 20 seconds of of footage made me wonder if that just is one of jarmusch's neighbors oh that'd be great he's like oh yeah that's my boat building neighbor and we're gonna put him in
4: the movie it'd be great i hope that's true uh so then ghost dog makes friends with a little girl named perline who he lends his book rashomon to the mobsters
1: his not his whatever the (laughs) the one he stole yeah
4: uh the mobsters start tracing all the pigeon coops in town and uh, they find Ghost Dog's cabin atop a building and kill his pigeons. And Ghost Dog realizes he's going to have to kill the entire mafia. Uh, or they'll kill him and his master. That old chestnut. Uh, I love – you mentioned it earlier, but the bird on the end of the rifle is mm. just – I mean, And that's the
3: second bird. There's the first bird <laughs> and then the second bird. Just one more. And then, like, he misses. They all walk in the house. He's like,
2: fuck! Fucking birds! Like, also, by the way, in that sequence – he goes to the trouble of doing the Austin Powers move of holding up the drunken couple so he can take the suit and yeah. put it on, and it takes which a, gives him no, no advantage, advantage at all. Yeah. Yeah, he pulls so up, shoots some people, and walks in in a suit. But like, also,
3: he wears that suit that he takes from that man, right? Yeah. Why yes, did I he take know. that lady's clothes? No, clothes. I, don't wow. I don't know. Like this I is we, have we had the track, we had the alternate <laughs> version where like it cut to that title card where he's like a samurai must put on rouge or whatever, and we're just like classic rock and he's putting on makeup in the mirror. Boom. So that's Forest Whitaker's
4: really undercover. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I think that so Ghost Dog goes in and he goes into Vargo's mansion and kills almost everyone he encounters single handedly, sparing only Louis and Vargo's daughter. But I the action scenes are actually really well orchestrated too. Like he's not an action director, and yet there's a fluidity to it. There's a, John a Wu-ish there's a John Wooish. There's a John Wooish quality it, to for it. Sure. For sure. Uh, and and yet, also as violent as it is, it does feel very sort of exact and very surgical in the way that he is taking these people out. Not in a sort of it's not like I don't know Django Unchained, for instance, where you've got like just like blood squibs going off like crazy. It's it's relatively contained for what that's worth. But um, well, it's also a good time to just
1: talk about kind yeah. of Forrest Whitaker yeah. in this moment. Like he has this weird grace slash lack of grace throughout the whole thing like i I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no one obviously there's no not a lot of leading men who look like Forrest Whitaker, but mm-hmm. also it's true,
3: but how <laughs> dare you
1: for, for like you know kind of obvious reasons, but also how dare you but also Forrest Whitaker kind of has to move in such a way um during these scenes that both betray. Years of study and a natural inability to move like a samurai, which I think is really interesting. All with almost no emotion on his face. throughout mm-hmm. the whole thing. So I thought that was kind of – I agree. I, I just loved the giant Forrest Whitaker lumbering through this house, but also moving sm- I think you're really hitting off.
3: the point hard, buddy. Yeah, well, you know, someone,
1: he's can, a cut big man. someone can cut me off at any time.
3: <laughs> you're saying he's so unathletic that –
1: no, it's not on a <laughs> Watching him
3: huff and puff it's, through scenes. It's, 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 it's like, thank God he has a gun, right? Like, no wonder he doesn't use that sword. It's too exhausting.
1: Yeah.
4: There you go. Uh, now we have the scene with the window, the window gag, then the bathroom sink gag, which we've talked about, which apparently that scene was taken from Zejun Suzuki's Branded to Kill, which came out in 67. So there you go uh Rizzo has his cameo ghost dog expects that Louis will attack him um as he feels that Louis must avenge the murder of his boss then we have a great scene which we haven't talked about which is the hunters with the black bear which I think is a I don't know I, showing the cultural chasm between these I mean this specific type of white person I guess this sort of hunters that have killed this black bear this giant black bear And what the commentary is there, I think, is really interesting. Um, They just feel like they're from two completely different worlds.
2: And there's also a great end line to that. There are a few great end lines to the scenes in this movie Mm -hmm. in terms of script writing. And in that scene, Forrest Whitaker wounds both hunters, you know, shoots him in the shoulder, shoots him in the legs. And he says something to one of the hunters about rules of an ancient culture. culture. And the hunter tries to say... This isn't an ancient culture. Forrest Whitaker says sometimes it is.
3: Yeah. <laughs> also made me think line. if Jordan Peele had
4: seen this movie and then like kind of used that for Get Out. For uh, sure. From. I mean, you, you, there, there's definitely something there. It's it's very it's it's a it's a really powerful scene that sort of stands out a little bit in terms of the plotting of the movie, but it does feel like it encapsulates. The it's
3: movie. the only other scene outside of like Forrest Whitaker getting his ass kicked by three white dudes in an alley that's like really about Race. Well, except, for, I mean, there are a couple of moments, but it's like the only explicitly like, what are you going to say?
2: No, I was just going to say, and it steps outside of his, of the trope of him being a samurai, right? right? It's the only yeah. scene, every other killing he does has to do with either a direct code, thing he was ordered to right. do or it's a code or you, right. know, you hurt my uh, chickens, not my chickens, my pigeons, pigeons. and I'm going to hurt yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> but that seems to be like you were saying one glimpse into the mystery of who was this guy before he went full samurai right. or yeah. who is yeah, this guy yeah, yeah. outside mm-hmm. of being a samurai? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, yeah. Cause he just decides to kill those guys because of how he feels about them killing this, this bear. Yeah. I mean, it does. It
4: also does feel a little bit like there's, and, and I think this might be sort of what you're, what you're driving at too. Just ghost dog, seems like a vegan ghost dog seems like a guy who cares a lot more about animals than he does about other people. So I think seeing this, these two hunters killing an animal, and that kind of goes back
3: to that loneliness thing. It's like, that's who he connects with is like people who, you know, don't talk back or just animals. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ghost dog goes back to the park, gives Raymond all his money to help him stay in the country. Perlina appears, gives him back his copy of Rashomon. She says she liked it. Uh, he then gives her his copy of the, Hag- how did you pronounce it? Ha-
2: ha- Hakuri?
4: Hagakur? The book. Oh,
2: I made it up an hour yeah. ago and can't remember how I Hag- made it up cool. now.
4: I uh, encourages <laughs> her to read it. Uh, though Louis feels some loyalty to Gostak, he finally confronts him at Raymond's ice cream stand with Raymond and Prillin watching. We have our standoff, this Western standoff, this Old West vibe. Um, but Gostak is unwilling to attack his master and allows Louis to kill him. His last act is to give Louis the copy of one and encourages him to read it. I like that he's just like a librarian, basically. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> yeah. just please read. Like, just. He's such know, a nerd, Like, yourself. When
3: that little girl's like, uh, what do you got, lunch in there? He's like, she's like,
4: oh no, I got books. He's like,
3: books? <laughs>
4: he's like, oh, <laughs> relax, for us, Whitaker.
3: I know you yeah. love.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, Perline takes Ghost Dog's gun and shoots at Louis, but the gun is empty, which feels, you know, very metaphorical. Um, but I do love that Louis stumbles like he's been shot by an invisible bullet, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool. Uh, then we get our itchy and scratchy thing and Ghost Dog dies peacefully with Raymond and Perlene at his side. And later Perlene reads the book that he gave her. And that's sort of, you know, that, from a plot perspective, that's sort of what it's, uh, what it's about. But uh, I, I think it, I agree with you on the itchy and scratchy thing being a little on the nose. But I think it. I don't know it's tempered for me anyway by the pearly and stuff later like that you're leaving it with her mm-hmm. that you're leaving it with the future and the potential of what she's capable of or you know what what future generations are capable of Um, gives it a little I don't know a little more something Um, but yeah I mean what did how did it leave you Kenny what, did, what were your thoughts on the final scenes. Other than the Perlene stuff, did it land for you? Do you want to see a future installment
1: with uh, Ghost Bitch? No, I didn't. <laughs> I definitely don't want to see a future installment with Ghost Bitch. But that's not really my that's not really my point. Easy, like, everyone. I don't think that I did Easy. not come up with Ghost Bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Lupita I,
3: Nyango's manager is not going to like did this. Not. <laughs>
4: I don't think it's like – I would 100% watch
1: yeah, of course. a, a Coast Dog sequel with that,
3: Lupita Nyong'o.
1: Yeah, sure. The
3: Ice Cream guy is back. He's
1: like Whistler Blade. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think like – I I don't think that it's that necess- necessarily that's what it was going for, sure, the idea sure. of future generations. You know, I Okay. No, I feel – I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, Jordan, but I feel like it does feel more like this is the end of this. And mm. something else will be written by someone else at some other time. Um, and that is kind of why the idea of a sequel leaves me cold. This does feel like a finished yeah. product. Like kind of very much I agree. to that in that respect. Um, I don't know. I think it's a really, really great movie. I think we said on the last podcast leading into this that I've never seen anything like it. I haven't I don't I can't think of anything like it before it. I don't really even know necessarily what it inspired coming after it uh, except for movies that aren't like it at all sure like john wick like john wick is if you if you if you gave the encapsulation of those two movies are very similar but stylistically one is basically just you know an americanized attempt to do a hong kong action movie um so i think like i i, I I love its existence in 1999 that we get to do a movie like this because there really isn't anything I else agree. like it. Like
4: 100%. And we have
1: so many of those this year. So that's that's kind of how I fall on it. But.
4: You know, the Praline thing reminded me a little bit of, as you were talking, I was thinking about the little girl, um, oh, my God, uh, Vivica
1: A. Fox's so daughter. Much so in Oh, in Kill, Bill. Kill Bill. Yeah. Like that. Like you're going to come and find me in 20 years? A little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, which I think is interesting. Kill Bill was after this, correct?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, he ended up working – RZA did music for Kill Bill. He did. Kill Bill, so too. I'm sure Quentin Tarantino saw the movie. <laughs> I was like, I, think that's I don't just steal yeah. movies from 1942 yeah. or yeah. 1978.
4: I'll take, it I'll from take one from 000. last year. <laughs> yeah. No, it definitely has that. I mean,
1: yeah. <laughs> that's a sequel I think they are going to make at some point. I'm sure. For I, real, uh, The, the I, Little Girl. Yeah, I think yeah. so,
4: too. Yeah,
1: much more anticipated,
4: I would say. Yes, it seems. It certainly seems that way. I, yeah, I think that the as I mentioned earlier, I think the film really stayed with me. Uh, it it left a you know I had known of it. I would even I would even venture to say I might have even started it back around ninety nine. Like took a copy of it home from the video store I was working at and just either didn't finish it or saw bits and pieces of it. But it's it's wholly original, you know, as is the case with with most of Jarmusch's movies. So. What do you guys
1: think? What are your takeaways?
3: This movie stayed with. I mean, this is a movie that was totally formative because of the year that it came out, and me kind of learning about film and not knowing about shit, and kind of going to like newer directors, like not newer, but you know, the current directors of the time, like Jim Jarmusch or Tarantino, or all the people that like me and Jordan. I know we watched their films, and that was like my sort of trace back to other older filmmakers and other like understanding other things. So that movie kind of set me on, you know, I studied whatever films that I thought were influenced, but that's where I found like out about Jean-Pierre Melville and John, sure. like all that kind of stuff. So it affected me that way. And I really loved it when I saw it, but I would say I've seen it several times since and I like it less every time I see it. Really? Like, yeah, I love it, but <laughs> I see how it sucks more and more when I see it. Because like, first of all, when I take anyone to see it or I've shown it to anyone immediately bored. Um, And I still love it, but like uh, that screening that I went to—you're saying uh, you're immediately bored? No, not me. The people that I take, so it's not for everyone. I'm saying I love it always, but like I see that it's it's a very like that's the thing with Jim Jarmusch's films, like it's exclusive, you know, and it's like that's the film that it's trying to be. It's boutique audience people want to see it, but it's like if it's not letting you in, it's sort of being like, are you cool enough to come to this club? And it's like people don't really dig that, you know. And it's like when I took I went to that screening in Paris, it was crazy because it was. Like, you know, middle of the day and it's filled with, like, moms who have, like, stuff they bought from the store and, like, like you know, people, like, university students and just, like, people of all ages and colors. And, like, they just came to see Ghost Dog in the middle of the fucking day. And I went with my friend who, we were in Paris, and she, like, immediately fell asleep as soon as he said, The Way of the Samurai. Like, it was, like, fucking Z's coming out of her mouth like a cartoon. And it's just, like, yeah. people do not like this film unless you love film. I think that like I can't imagine anybody who doesn't love film liking this movie and that's what knocks it down a notch for me because it's like it's not it's not one of his better films like I'd like it I love it like his you know dead man is probably the one that I'd also really love Um, but it's an interesting sort of b-side from like a great director and the kind of b-side that sticks with you if like that's your aesthetic like I didn't see hip-hop art films very often sure you know may have been the first like (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that really was like, Oh, I didn't know that you could do that kind of stuff. So definitely sticks with me. But like, as time has gone by, it doesn't totally hold up in a lot of ways, you know, as entertainment,
4: it doesn't as like film study. I think it totally does. Here's a question for everybody. Cause what you just said made me think of this. How do we feel about a filmmaker who doesn't make films for the audience? Do you know what I'm, do you yeah. what I'm saying? Like sure. I, and I don't I, I I honestly don't know how I feel about it. There are times where I think that, you know, just fucking entertain people. You know what I mean? And then there's times where I'm just like, but have some artistic integrity. But I feel like time. the way
3: that I feel about this, it's like, I love it, but everybody else hates it and that's fine. You know, it's like I like when yeah. I talk about like recommended a movie, it's like nobody wants to hear it because it's it feels like learning, you know, and it's like but for people who do want to like watch this stuff, like it's great that they exist. It's great that there is a Jim Jarmusch and not just like, you know, whatever is accessible to everyone, even like middle brow art cinema, like right. whatever kind of Oscar shit from every year. It's like it's cool that there's somebody trying to do something that like specific, you know, yeah, it's
4: pushing people. I yeah, think that,
2: I mean, I. Sorry, and ahead. what you were saying before about when you sit down to watch a foreign film, you have to kind of recalibrate yeah. to a, a different language of film. Yeah, I think it's so important to have films, books, songs, whatever, where what they're asking of their audiences is can you recalibrate to an entirely individualized language of one, not a universal cinematic language, but a personalized cinematic language that in fact may take more than one film for you to learn. You may have to learn what this shot means to me over a series of films or what this idea or this trope means to me. You might have to watch it a couple times. And that's like a different way of getting your own brain to think. And again, even saying this, I hear how boring it sounds and how much it just sounds like, no, but it's great. Like, like that. I
3: feel like I'd love that because it's like, I want to see somebody's personal stamp on a yeah. movie and see, like I watch entire filmographies in a role, like, like from beginning to end, like short films, whatever. So much like,
2: say obsessively.
3: Yeah, I even say it. it's fine. Like, it's fine. Um, but yeah, like you go through and it's interesting that, like, I've been, I'm watching a lot of Ridley Scott movies right now, like all of them, like in a row. And it's easy, like you think of his filmography one way when you, when you really watch it, you like, oh, wow, he's made a lot of shitty movies. But like
0: we <laughs> yes. think of him
3: as like a long, consistent filmography, but it's not really the case. And it's yeah. just like, it's cool for people who like that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's cool that that exists. And, you know, it's it's still like kind of a semi-vital part of cinema. But I like, get to that point,
4: I mean, forgive me if this sounds pretentious, but is, is film not about just us getting in somebody else's skin, right? I mean, that's the whole point is for mm-hmm. us to experience either the characters or the filmmakers or whoever, right? It's a collaborative effort. It takes hundreds of people to make a film, but it's to climb into somebody else's shoes if it's for two hours, if it's for three hours, if it's for 90 minutes, whatever it is. And I think that... You know, when you were talking about like a singular vision, the first person that comes to mind for me is Kubrick. And I think that, I mean, at least from an American perspective, I think he was not just a trailblazer because he pushed audiences, but also because he did things that no one had ever really thought about doing with cinema before. And he made people think in ways that they had never done before. Um, and we need more of that. And I know that sounds boring and I know it sounds like school and it, and unfortunately, that's just unfortunate, but I just think it's, I think it's vitally important that we, we need more of that, not less of it, especially where we are right now in Hollywood. And I think that this 99, this podcast for at least for, I like to think for both of mm-hmm. us, but has just exposed me to things, movies that I just disregarded like deadly do right. That I thought, why the fuck am I going to watch deadly do right? And then I sat down and watched it a couple of weeks ago and was pleasantly entertained, thought it was a blast. And, I, you know, you it would never get made today. There's when I look at the list of the 300 some odd movies that we have to cover for 1999. I think it's safe to say that probably 70 percent of them wouldn't get made today, maybe more.
1: And and that's just that's just really sad. Well, right, so your initial question that yeah. we're that we're talking about now mm-hmm. is how do we feel about filmmakers who make things yeah. for themselves versus for an audience? Yeah. And, and not to bring up do right again, but it's it's, it's such <laughs> no, a movie.
3: it's such a you
1: you kind of have to because. The problem with a movie like it's that, ba- it's amazing. <laughs> Next based filmography:
3: Brendan Fraser, Hugh Wilson. Hugh
1: Wilson. Ba- <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but um, based based on a cartoon, is it seems so obvious you're going to make this for a certain audience, and it's what does this audience like, and what they really mean is what do these idiots like,
0: yeah.
1: um, and that's not what that film does. Yeah. That film comes from, to me comes directly from the mind of one guy. And he just says, what would I want to see a Dudley Do right movie be? Yep. Just like this mm-hmm. is like, what would I like to see a U-tang Hitman movie. Samurai yeah. movie be? Yeah. yeah, basically. Um, and I think that personally, I think that's the only way to do it. I agree. I can't, I, I, I can't get in the mindset of what would this audience like or that audience like or these idiots like. like we write on a show really? where like our audience is not like us for the most part, as far as we know. But we never sit in the room, or at least we try not to, and say, this is what they would like, or at least
2: we don't. I think we just try to do the best we can. And by the way, what gets lost when it doesn't work like that, right? When you're talking about, and I think, look, you're cynical but correct to say, that when a studio executive says, what does the audience want? They mean that not using a very flattering way to their conception of the audience. It's it's never, what do these high-minded intellectuals want? And almost always what gets squeezed out in that process is a sense of theme or a sense of worldview or a sense of like, what is life about? Which sounds corny, but like, that's what is missing from some of you were talking about the Marvel universe. I couldn't come away from the Marvel universe and tell you something about uh, what, what this mortal coil means to (laughs) me, you know, like what does it mean to live this mortal life? Like, and that's strange in a way, you know, like when you go back and watch an older type of movie, good, bad, of course, you almost always come away saying, oh, I think I see some hint of what this filmmaker Which, believed about yeah. this situation or about these people or about his life or but her life. It's, it's interesting what you were
4: saying about how Jarmusch feels a little bit like, are you cool enough to be in this club? And I think there's complete legitimacy to that. I don't know him as a person, but it certainly feels that way just looking at his films. But then the the alternate view of that could be that he's a filmmaker that just wants to to expand people's horizons that he wants to give them something they've never seen before, which I like to think most filmmakers try to do. I don't know that it's true, but maybe I think that You know, I don't know how pretentious he is. I don't know if maybe he is just sitting around just, you know, jerking himself off with any number of other, you know, highfalutin ideas or what have you. But I also wonder if he's just like, I just want to make a cool movie. I I think most of his movies
3: are jokes about his pretension. Like, I think he's very in on it. I
4: think he is too. But I also think that, you know, you bring up Tarantino, right? And Tarantino sometimes feels like, to me anyway, a guy who just wants to show you all the obscure movies that he's seen through making, you know, a pastiche of a bunch of different genres that... Now... I like his films. I enjoy his films. But I also find myself sometimes being like, can you like actually tell a story that doesn't just involve revenge? Like, do you have something else to say? And for good or for bad, I think that Jarmusch has a lot to say, sometimes obliquely, sometimes in ways that are very sort of vague and nebulous. But I think he has something to say. And I think he just wants you to leave the films similar to like Lynch who I think is a guy who will never hold your hand, will never tell you what the hell he means by anything. And as long as you felt something and it left you feeling something, he's happy. So I, I I know that, you know, maybe I'm not answering my question and maybe none of us are, but I do think that all of this kind of circles this idea of that filmmakers that that are trying to do something should be embraced. Sometimes we see that, sometimes we don't. We're seeing a lot of... Sp- studio tentpole movies and a lot of comic book movies, but that's why this movie to me feels like such such a breath of fresh air. You know, when I sat down to watch this film, I, you know, we did three films. We recorded three podcasts today. We did deadly do right. We did stir of echoes and we did ghost dog three drastically dissimilar films. And all of them gave me joy in totally different ways. And I just think that that spectrum is getting lost. It's becoming narrower and narrower. It's interesting
1: yeah. because of those three movies, I don't know, have you guys seen Stir of Echoes? No. Do you know mm. Stir of Echoes? I'm Kevin trying Bacon? to remember. What,
4: no, I don't remember. Kevin
1: Bacon. Kevin Coast Bacon, is. David Kep directed it, David Kep wrote it. Yeah. Um, that movie is the problem that you're talking about. And we think it's a pretty good movie. <laughs> but that movie is the movie that has been you know, put through the factory and and with a lot of people saying, what do the audience want? What does the audience want? And in that sense, it is kind of a jumbled mess. And you can kind of see the through line. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see the ideas you're talking about in terms of this is what I think it means in this particular movie. This is what I think it means to be a father. This is what I think it means to be um, a man. Or this is what I think it means to be a failure. But they get a little lost because I, I think we we kind of came down on the idea of there were too many voices there and there weren't enough people actually helping the movie, like good editors. I agree. Um. But yeah, you don't have that in a movie like this. That's why it's it's yeah. wonderful that these 1 million, 2 million, yeah. 3 million. I know you guys also really liked Florida Project yeah. last year, which kind of feels like the modern version of a movie like this, where there just aren't a lot of hands yeah. in there pushing it in the directions you don't want to go. Cause babe, who the fuck's going to tell the, the director what to do in a movie like that? Right. It's a specific <laughs> yeah. point
3: of view, because like, I don't think there was a page, probably, for the script. It's like a set of you know shots. Peremptors. For like 45 minutes, yeah. really. It's like the first 45 minutes of that movie, Le Samurai, that French film, like almost exactly that like Jean-Pierre Melville film, which he's totally riffing on. And it's like, there's no script there. It's just pure cinema. And a lot of these dudes, it's like, you have to let them direct from their point of view because that's literally the only way that you'll get anything out of them. There's no, there's no, a, like Jim Jarmusch can't adapt a movie. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you're buying into a brand.
4: Well, it's funny because I I actually see a lot of, Sean Baker in this too. I yeah. mean, I think that Sean Baker is the type of filmmaker. I mean, I, I love Florida project. I love tangerine I love um, starlet. All of his films I think are great. He, there's an electricity to what he does. That feels very much like to your uh, other point just now, not probably scripted. You know what I mean? There, yeah. There's, there's an energy there's to an, what an you're immediacy. seeing. It's like you're, yeah.
3: you're seeing it happen right there and you know it because, like, for example, that movie Florida Project, the mm-hmm. girl from the movie, he found her on Instagram. Yeah. Like, and the way that she's delivering that performance is almost like the way that people deliver performances on an Instagram story. Yep.
1: Yep. So That's you're true. just
3: seeing it. You're seeing it happen because it is happening.
1: Just yeah, it's, it's, another point about, about this idea with um, you know, not having a script or whatever along those lines. David Lynch said about his movies, it doesn't matter. It, it it doesn't matter what you think about it or what you think about it or you think about it or what anyone thinks about it because it makes sense to me. Yeah. You know? And as long as it makes sense to the filmmaker and you trust that the filmmaker is telling the truth, which yeah. I think is kind of important too because I think a lot of people are full of shit. But if you trust that the filmmaker is telling the truth and you trust that they're actually executing a vision, then you can go in there and actually do your own little dissection and surgery and that's the fun of this i I feel like right and that's why to some extent i i love quentin tarantino like obviously i love quentin tarantino but quentin tarantino is like a very elementary game like the game you're the game you're playing with quentin tarantino movies are like all right, like what movie did this come from? What movie did yeah, that come from? No, I don't, know. I don't know. Me and Jordan
3: feel a little bit differently about Quentin Tarantino. I would say that
1: seems
2: like a whole <laughs> other podcast. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not do, to not do, to do you love him well. or not
3: love him. No, we love him. Like, I mean, I would say I don't want to speak for you, but I would say like he's a big influence on us, and not like just because of like cinematic style. Sure. Like, if you, I would say Jackie Brown is probably the movie that's influenced us, if not the
2: most in the top five of all of our actual work that we like. Do. Although it's you know, your favorite, although it's notable that. Com- coming off what Phil was saying, Jackie Brown is probably the Tarantino film. He tried least. being human. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. And then they're it's like, we the don't want to see human. that shit.
3: And he's like, all right, karate. How about that? Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, and truthfully, I, and I really feel like, yeah. you know, it I, really was. It was I, a reaction. It was his Pinkerton. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and
1: I do. I love Pinkerton, but I all, I do love. We're so sad. I saw, I was watching the, the New Year's <laughs> Eve thing with my right girlfriend because I yeah.
3: decided to stay in and that was a mistake because like, it's so boring. We could have done something. Toto? But like, cause the, the programming was just like Steve Harvey throwing it to Weezer. And they're like, I was like, they're just like a bunch of old dudes holding <laughs> guitars. I was like, yeah. like, my girlfriend's like, that's Weezer. I was like, that's Weezer. And they were like doing the worst song I've ever heard in my life.
4: Like, yeah. is it not Africa? I don't, they covered Africa. It,
3: it must have been their cover of Africa. And I was like, why are they doing the cover of Africa? Like,
2: but again, it's, it's like meta on eight levels. They came out with this cover so of Africa. Weird. You yeah. may not know this. No, it's, I don't. It's, it's the whole thing about it is, it's indistinguishable from the original. I don't mean kind no. It of sounded like yeah, exactly like you it. You cannot tell the difference.
3: Is there some sort of challenge for it yet?
2: <laughs> but did you but did you guys hear yes ALS has
3: been
4: solved Africa. Africa, Africa challenge Pitbull covered Africa Pitbull covered Africa for the Aquaman
1: soundtrack but, oh, right, no. but now you're yeah, yeah. but now we're in that <laughs> place because now <laughs> don't get me if started that's, on Pitbull if that's, if that's true and that was the intention that's actually kind of amazing to me I do I think, think that was the that's intention that's like that's actually kind of brilliant to me to prove how stupid the exactly. song is exactly I think they're subverting but, the
2: idea of the cover by making a cover you can't even tell it's a cover and becomes a hit anymore. I'll tell but, you like, what Steve Harvey did not know that
1: oh but like we, <laughs> a 90s band making a cover of an 80s band doing it the exact same way putting it on radio and having it be a big hit's pretty awesome and then pitbull taking that and making a sincere cover Mm. for aquaman Aquaman.
4: is the best i mean it's it's our industry just crawled up its own ass basically but just to briefly get back to your tarantino (laughs) thing because i i don't mean to sound like i was you know against him as a filmmaker i do love a lot of his work i do think jackie brown is probably his best film. It's certainly his most emotionally rich film. It's also not original and based on somebody else's work. I think that he's, it
3: was, it was not like straight adapted from like like, rum punch, like that almost all the details that make Jackie Brown, what it is are filled in by like him being a poor person in Los Angeles in Torrance. Like you see every, and like that movie, like was about a white lady. Like it was a totally different situation.
4: I recognize that, that, but he still felt it necessary to, say that it was based on rock right, right. for what it's worth. And again, I'm not taking anything Sorry. away from it. I no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I just, I think that, I think that to your point that you just made moments ago, that was a, a moment for him where yeah. it was like, I'm either going to keep making movies like this that are emotionally rich. And then no one liked it or be and popular. I would actually argue director, by the
2: way yeah. that his fascination with history recently is almost an oblique way of getting back at something a little bit emotionally or thematically richer than say just a straight look i love kill bill um so when i say straight pastiche i actually don't mean it negatively negatively weirdly enough you know because i do think like if everyone could do it then everyone could do it there's a reason that only tarantino can make the kill bills sure but like I've loved the last two movies, in particular the last one, which I feel like the fewest. Hateful Eight? Hateful Eight. What was the one before? Like, it? Hateful Eight's a Civil War movie. Hateful Eight is a movie about race relations in our country, and it speaks to. I feel, uh, I think it's a really interesting movie. And, I, I think and the did. more I've watched it, I didn't love it in the theater. I liked it the second time through, and I love. I need it the to. Third, I need to
4: rewatch through. it because I've somewhere it might have been twitter was talking about hateful eight someone was rewatching it and it did make me go like i should go back i didn't love it in the theater i saw it once in 70 at the dga with the intermission and the whole fucking thing and i thought it was an exercise and that's my fear with him is that they've become exercises a little bit um what was the
1: one before hateful eight that you
2: django was Jango before? Oh yeah, I guess Jango was. Before.
1: Django and Actually, then, Jango, I'm I don't love Django. I don't love. I like Heath like, I'm crazy about Inglorious Bastards. I love. I
4: love Inglorious Bastards.
1: Uh, and I love Tarantino. I don't mean to say I don't. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I just think it's there's a reason why he's the guy who. who also, kind of lives above all the yeah. other guys. I think it's a little more accessible than everything else. Yes. But
3: just Kill Bill, I would say, is more than pastiche. Not to go in there and defend every single film that <laughs> Ben Tarantino's made.
1: Yeah.
3: It's an interesting film about a single mother in a very complicated relationship with an older man. Also true. I, do you – And, and a very is, much where, like, she, she does not have the power in that relationship and has had to, like, sort of cope yeah, with the parameters the that, is. like – uh, what's his name? It's supposed to be Warren Beatty, but it was somebody yeah, else. Carradine. Uh, yeah. Dave Carradine, yeah. yeah. Do you see there. them Good as point.
0: two films?
2: I see them as one film. I see them as one film, too. Okay. I, I mean, just, I understand you know that I in mean? terms of where the pastiche is borrowing from, there is They're certainly both, distinction there's a distinction between, you know? the, between the Western stuff yeah. and, and, the and the Kung the Fu stuff. Kung Fu stuff. stuff. Um, but in terms of what Manny's talking about, yeah. I, I think, yeah, the, the the character plays across both. Things. I agree with that. I mean, and again,
4: I'm I think it's just... I think back to sitting in that theater seeing Pulp Fiction for the first time, my mom sneaking me in to oh, see man. it. And fucking goosebumps. I was 14 years old. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And it was just, it was, it blew my mind. And I just I, I want that back. Like I want, I want him to find that electricity again. And instead, I feel like I'm just seeing. Uh, a film a film store clerk who's just mashing kind of a lot of his things together and and again are still enjoyable films and there's still something there i'm just i'm i'm hoping since i guess we're not getting that many more films from him well, so we're told so no, we're like, told the say, is always retiring right.
0: also so, so
4: exactly <laughs> i just hope that at some point and it seems like this new one certainly feels like a pivot back towards trying to make something that cuz Hateful Eight was not embraced and i think he's going to try to sort of do something that's a little more a la pulp fiction but I just want to see him take a really big swing once, one more time. I want to see him just like take a movie and make a movie about getting old
1: in crime, like he did with Jackie Brown. Just- well, to also to Manny's point, I'd like to see something contemporary. Yeah, you know, like I think yes. he, this is what this will be the fourth or fourth straight period piece. period piece. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Kill Bill is not a period piece, but Kill Bill almost exists on a different mm-hmm. plane. Yes, um, I th- I really. To, like, the first three, I mean, I look, the first three are great, obviously, and also True Romance, which I would throw in there as well. Right. And I'd like to see that again. Yeah. You know? Well, because there's something
4: timeless
1: and about natural those movies.
4: That, man. And natural, you, like, yes, they're contemporary, but they also don't feel like they exist in any time period for lack. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the thing that dates movies for me mostly is technology or fashion, and he clearly doesn't give a fuck about either of those things. So they just kind of exist in some sort of, like, weird – you know, temporal place, which I think is awesome. And I just kind of want to see him do that again. Yeah, but They
2: exist in Tarantino space. The way like characters exist in, 70s, exist in Cohen yeah. space. Exactly.
4: Yeah. Exactly. But again, a tremendous filmmaker and you can see his influences. You can see his influences on ghost dog and from ghost dog, which I think mm. is quite interesting as well. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's, I think it's a really, I don't know. That it's was our Tarantino, Tarantino Also, podcast. I just remembered uh, when I, first saw a
3: tarantino movie it was uh pulp fiction with my mom and when you get to the ass fucking scene you really don't want to be sitting next to your mom <laughs> yeah so Accurate. I, that was i was like oh, my yeah Lord. i was
4: 14 and i was like what the well fuck at least he got happening? dropped off though <laughs>
3: <laughs> you weren't like sitting next to her like i really like the trailer was no, no, very different. she was sitting
4: next to me she didn't drop me off oh she snuck me into the movie and then sat there with how her. did you feel in that moment it felt emblematic of
1: my relationship oh. with my mother. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a Canada thing, right? You can't see movies yeah, under a certain. Like, there's no. It, rated kind of R movie. movies,
4: yeah. it's not you can go oh, you with have someone. To go. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like you can't even go with. Like, I oh, like, yes? can't see that movie, yeah, yeah. period. Yeah. Like,
2: X here. For yeah. Whereas,
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they just, we have different, a whole different thing. So, like, Rated R in Canada is NC17 here, is basically. Oh. Yeah. It's, oh, shit. Yeah. So you can't. Damn, that's a lot of movies you didn't see. But they weren't all rated R in Canada, is the point of view. I being, right? see. So, so they like, adjusted Their, their for distinction action. of what 14A is right. is
3: different. So R than. is just NC-17 and you guys...
4: Whatever like, was R here Like be. a random movie that I could not see was Ransom. Huh, because that was rated R.
1: I don't even know if that was rated R here.
4: Yeah. It probably was. You had kids in peril. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so we do something on this show where we rank our movies from 0 to 99. 0 being the lowest, 99 being the highest, 50 being the metric with which you would recommend a movie. Uh, we we basically rank the film in 99, if we saw it in 99, and then we rank it before we sat down for this podcast, and then after, as though the podcast might have swayed your opinion in one way or the other. Uh, I will go first, so you guys can take a second to think about what your grades for this film is. Uh, I did not see it in 99. Might have seen bits and pieces of it, but certainly not enough to rank it. Before this podcast, I'd probably give it a 79. Um... After it, I've gone up to about an eighty-four.
1: Oh, well, that's a that's pretty high, Phil. Yeah. So. Um, you guys, you you guys have rankings ready to go. Ready no, to go. Love <laughs> you it. guys. All yeah. right, I'll go first. Um, uh, I gave it a seventy-five before the podcast. Yeah. Um, for all the reasons we said, but I think ultimately, you know, the reason it isn't higher because it is a bit, slow. Um, <laughs> it's a bit slow. It's a bit slow, and I found my mind wandering a decent amount. So, uh, But when my mind was there, I was really enjoying it. And uh, there's a lot done back. I I love
3: that review, by the way. When (laughs) my (laughs) mind was there, I was really enjoying it. it had my attention. (laughs) That's
1: every movie I see now. No, me too, man. That's the worst. Having anxiety and watching movies is not fun. I know. It's like every movie I see is like, (laughs) can you hold my attention? And I work so hard to like not – we've talked about this before, Jordan. Like to keep the phone away from me and like just – Focus on what's ahead of me, especially with this podcast, but I have to take notes. Yeah. So, okay. But at 75. Do you take notes
4: on your phone when you're. Yeah, I do. Oh, I do it on my computer.
1: 75 uh, before. Um, I'm keeping. 75 is pretty much where I, I would land after the podcast. Um, I think it's a great singular movie. I'm really happy to, that we got to do it.
2: Yeah, my, my bandwidth is also narrow for this. I saw it back in ninety-nine or 2000 sure. and loved it yeah. um, and was a movie I recommended to people for the last 20 years. Um, so had to be a 75 or an 80. Um, seeing it again this morning, I was struck more by, not that I mind deliberate pacing, mm-hmm. um, but particularly the deliberately paced last third. There are some moments where I felt like, Okay, so maybe it went down to a 72 or 73, but actually listening in particular to you Mm -hmm. uh, kind of talk up how much you liked it and were affected by it. But in this podcast, I'm back to an 80. So I'm glad. it's good. I I started out at
3: 99 for sure. I was like, this is the best movie I've seen. And then it was like, uh, I I bought the DVD and saw it several times. I was like, this is less, less good than I remember. And it was like down to a 75. And when I saw it today, I'd say like 65. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's dropped down tremendously. Like, I'm glad for what it did for my life, but not a movie I <laughs> ever need
4: to see again. Probably. Interesting. We've seen it like eight times.
3: Yeah, that's enough. Yeah, eight, eight is enough.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I,
4: yeah. I, I, I think it's, to, to To. quote sort of Kenny, uh, I'm just glad it exists. I'm glad Me that, too. that, that yeah. we live in a world where a movie like this could exist and, and that Jarmusch continues to make movies and continues to, you know, pushes audience in different directions and I, I think it's I think it's really it sadly
3: barely exists if you want to yeah, find this well, movie you better find a very cool yeah, local the, the, oh, I for, I think, the, where did
1: you guys find it uh,
3: uh, video the video store. store by my you know in South Pasadena that, that I go to but.
4: I had a friend of mine download it for me off of a you know, bit uh, some sort you of uh, Pirates torrent, Bay something like that 10 years out of date uh, I think that Artisan doesn't really exist anymore to the same extent. I think they've yeah, lost somebody, somebody owns, owns that. It's going to be a criterion and, yeah. in like less than five years. I'm sure well, it's too.
3: Harvey Weinstein's
4: fault. Uh, everything.
2: <laughs> uh,
0: just... So next week we have something it's a big one. really exciting. Very special. Something fans of the show uh, have been looking forward to for at least a month. Have maybe, a maybe, couple weeks, have been Yeah, I believe there's been some fanfic about it out there. Maybe some slash, Some fic. Reddit posts? Not sure, definitely a Reddit post. Um, a picture where I wouldn't say it's the most flattering picture of me of all time. But well, I don't think it's as unflattering as you say I it look is. crazy. Well, we're
4: just both very excited. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're very excited because next week we're doing Toy Story 2 with the incomparable Griffin Newman. From uh, from Blank Check, we got, we the got uh, Downtown Griffy Nooms.
1: I love that this guy
0: is first and foremost from his podcast, and second from the show he stars in on
4: Amazon. <laughs> well, let's be real—that's—I mean, it's, it's true. It's you know, there are fans, you know, fervent fans on both sides of that. Um, but we got it. We got him on. We 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 purposefully saved Toy Story 2 for Griffin. It was always the dream. It was always the goal. Um, you know, he he has spoken of it being. The greatest
0: American film of all time. Uh, A claim he doubles down on. on Doubles and triples and quadruples down on in our podcast. Not to give it away, we don't question him. Yeah, no. Nor
4: nor should we. It's one of the great films. (laughs) It is. um, You know, I hadn't watched it in a while, uh, and it was. It's a really powerful movie. It's a surprisingly. You know, there's there's some stuff in there that's really, pretty intense.
0: Yeah, it is. It's it's an incredible movie. I think it really is kind of the. The, the movie that set the um, kind, kind of the thematic baseline for Pixar moving forward. I agree with that. Um,
4: and, I think it's also part of, and we talk about this in the podcast, but part of the development process, I think set the bar very high for them. I think they wanted this to be the best possible sequel it could be. And it feels like that became the standard bearer for a while. I mean, you can argue whether or not some of their sequels since are of that caliber, but they're not. I mean,
0: unless you want to say the Toy Stories, but it's yes. just you. You could basically, you know, the, the argument is where does Toy Story two rank on Pixar's all time list because it uh, it really is a different kind of movie. They they really knocked it out of the park. Obviously, everyone knows that.
4: But um, but to have Griffin on talking about it was really really exciting and yeah. really fun. I mean, Kenny and I are both obviously we're we're big blankies. We're big fans, and uh, and to have him on. Was kind of surreal in its own way.
0: Yeah, and and not to, no one else is going to say this, <laughs> and don't tell him we told you this. But he really is everything you'd hope he'd be at first. He really is. I,
4: I, you know, Kenny texted me. I don't know, probably a couple months ago. I don't remember what episode of Blank Check it was, but Kenny texted me and said, "Griffin Newman is an American treasure." <laughs>
1: <laughs> I really feel that way. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I think come, he is. What was it? I don't there remember. Was one episode that i i knew a ton about the i knew a ton about the um the the making of the movie like i kind of had an inside track on it and he uh he nailed everything he, he did it was weird he like nailed like things like things that that the characters were you know what i'm gonna come back this is a two part episode at the Throw at the end of the first part. I will tell you what movie it was and what episode of Blank Check it was. So there's another there's another reason for you. another
4: reason for you to tune in All but right. next week. Griffin Newman from Blank Check for Toy Story Two. Uh, it's a doozy. It's as good as you as you want it to be. Please tune in. Thanks.
0: 1999.
4: Um, are you guys on Twitter?
3: Do you have Twitter handles? No, not really. We're not. We'd That's get fine. in trouble if we did it. I like to I like to send carrier pigeons. <laughs>
4: That's the perfect ending of this episode. Uh, I'm
0: at PM I can't
1: We did two, two, two hours and eight minutes on uh, Ghost Dog. My tweets.
4: <laughs> I'm at PM Iscove on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Like 1999 Kenny is at Nybart on Twitter. Um, thank you for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe. Thank, thank, you thank you guys next week for, both for Blue coming Street. in, please. Yeah, guys, next week, and will you both come back for another movie? Is we would love yes, perhaps another sure. ninety nine
1: that you'd come back for,
4: and yeah, we'll send you the list and we'll figure it out. Watch
1: Step Up High Water on YouTube. Preview. We don't know when it drops. When does it when come is it? out? Yeah, no idea. You've no. no idea. Reshoot's happening this weekend.
0: <laughs> Tweet Neo.
1: <laughs> Basically, happening like it could happen any moment. Sometime this month, maybe.
4: So it's called Step Up High Water.
1: Yes, and mm-hmm. that's the first time I think I've told people on this podcast. Actually, by the time this drops, it will probably have. Yeah, this is going to drop in February.
3: Yeah, So many March, likes, February.
1: whatever that is. Yeah, we'll know <laughs> a lot about our futures at that point, guys. It's exciting. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for listening. <laughs>